Welcome, friends and vibe tribers. It is another Wednesday night. We're going to have a great time. We've got Brandon Sterling here to teach us a little bit about the true private and special bonus guest, Beth Martins. Always a pleasure to see you, lovely Beth. Thank you for being here with us. And we were just catching up a little bit before we started the stream. And I was talking to Brandon about how I came across his work through Clint Richardson, someone who I've interviewed many times. <laughs> Although it's not really, you don't have to interview Clint. You just wind him up and watch him go. <laughs> it's really something else. <laughs> Love that guy. So turns out Brandon and Clint have uh, a real life friendship, which is pretty cool. Their work uh, perfectly gels together and complements one another. So I'm really excited to get into this tonight. Brandon has proven himself to be already a top shelf guest. He's got slides. You know, that's, <laughs> you can't beat that. That's always awesome. So uh, Brandon, welcome to the Vibrant. Thanks for coming on tonight, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I've been uh, enjoying your show. been catching up on it the last couple of weeks. So. Anything you like, uh, it, what, anything that caught your eye? I'm kind of curious what uh, a man of your talents might find interesting. Yeah, actually, last night I was watching the one you did. Uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name. He was uh, some type of scientist out in Utah, specialized in petroglyphs, stuff like that. Um, I think you guys were talking about the Pegasus. So, Oh, yeah, John McHugh. That episode was great. Yeah, that guy is was- uh, one of a kind. I was taking notes. I mean, the guy was just full of good information. So, and Beth, how have you been? I'm well, thanks. Yeah, just sliding in from uh, in my last second here, and uh, yeah, it's been never a dull moment in my world. I want to say, and uh, really great to get your invitation today. It's funny. I was thinking about you yesterday, and then you pop up in my Telegram. So it's uh, really nice to be here. I uh, wanted to have Brandon on ever since I heard him on Red Pill Sunday School with Clint. And you beat me to it. So <laughs> you, you guys had a great, you've done one together, right? What was that about? Like five, I think. Oh, you've done five with Brandon. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. So you guys yeah. are tight. Yeah. I'm down the rabbit hole with Brandon here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're the perfect uh, wing lady for this episode. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, I hope so. I'm just a student. I'm learning. I haven't drawn any hard conclusions, but I'm really happy not to think that the end, the world is going to end anymore. So, and then Brendan is, is, uh, to thanks for that. And, and also Clint Richardson, <clears throat> it's, it's way more fun when you're working, when you think the world is not going to end. Oh, so true. It's like final level of conspiracy unlocked the <laughs> conspiracy that everything's going to be fine. <laughs> oh, exactly. We're just so inundated with the constant doomsday narratives. Uh, especially when it comes to the financial world. And it's coming from people that actually don't know what they're talking about. So it's really concerning to me. And, um, you know, I talk to a lot of people and oftentimes when they're in the spaces that we find ourselves in, we're inundated with those narratives. And it's really hard for some people to break free of that. The world isn't going to end. The dollar isn't going to collapse tomorrow. It's just, uh, you know, I think people need to get some perspective and see uh, that it's really not as bad as people are painting it out to be. I think they're just wanting to get some shock value for views or whatever. Yeah, no, I was amazed that there was 
not only as much propaganda on our side, I'll say, you know, the freedom truth movement, but I now would hazard a guess to say there's even more because the bunnies over there, you know, they take poison injections, they muzzle themselves, they do things really easily. You just scare them a little bit and they're like, oh, I'll do whatever you say. Whereas we need like a lot more fear to take any action. And it doesn't matter what the fear is about, whether it's poison injections or the dollar collapsing. Like that's the one that finally got me because I had so many of those finance guys in my world and they all speak the same story about that. We actually had one on with Brandon the other day to uh, not debate, but to uh, have a conversation. And uh, it was actually quite revealing. I'll just say. Yeah. It's yeah. almost like the, uh, the fear narratives are on one side to get the the bunnies to take unhelpful actions. And then on the truther side, it's to scare people into complete inaction or, you know, there's also the doling out of hopium. Someone else will fix it. Someone else will save you. You Both things are going on. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. You definitely get both sides and our people tend to be more up in anger. We have higher energy. We're more dangerous, you know, to our controllers. And so they have to take bigger shots at us. So, Brandon, why don't you introduce everybody to yourself and your work, how you found your way onto this podcast today and in our circles? Yeah, so I'll kind of start back earlier in my life. Um, You know, back uh, when I was 18, I was kicked out of my house. I was completely on my own. And, uh, you know, I kind of had to, well, not kind of, I absolutely had to start from scratch. And, uh, you know, at that time, I was kind of floating around on people's couches until I figured my own situation out. Uh, but during that same time, I actually started to get interested in business. And um, just because the business I was involved with at the time it involved other people, business partners of mine. Um, it's, yeah, I won't say what that exactly was, but um, I started at a really young age with some older people that kind of showed me how these things that I now talk about work. And so I was really fortunate enough to be able to be around those people that I needed to be around. And, uh, yeah, it, it just opened a whole can of worms of learning for me. So ever since I, uh, I haven't had a job. I have been running, I, I've done different things over the years, but you know, when it comes to the business and then I got involved in the financial markets later on, uh, back in 2019. I started to get mentored from people from the hedge fund investment banking world. So between those two worlds, the private ventures world slash business world, and then the hedge fund investment banking world, it was to me like the perfect blend. Cause growing up, I was always interested on how both worked. I didn't really know how uh, things kind of made things move in one thing or the other. So it all kind of came together early on in my uh, early 20s. And ever since then, I've just been taken off. The- yeah, you, you started early. <laughs> Some yeah. of us are looking for solutions for a decade before we stumble into the simple truth that, well, you already had the right. <laughs> you already have the rights that you're trying to fight for. Oh, exactly right. And um yeah, funny enough, I started going down the uh, kind of the conspiracy stuff back when I was 12. I actually, I, it was on TV, I believe it was a Jesse Ventura show. And he's talking about the Bilderberg Group. And I was like, what the heck is this all about? So 
you know, way back, I don't even know the year, but I was 12 at the time, started looking into all that and it opened up this whole world. So, <laughs> so anyways, that's kind of how I got involved. Um, you know, between those three things, uh, that's kind of how I got here today. Um, you know, funny story about Clint and I, uh, I was doing a private presentation, uh, for a group and, uh, at the end of the presentation, someone up, uh, someone went up to me and they said, Hey, uh, you know, I know this guy, Clint Richardson. He wrote the book on the straw man. He talks about a lot of the same stuff you talk about and he's wanting to set up a PMA. Uh, but he just doesn't know how he doesn't trust people. So I think you'd be the guy. So reach out to this Clint guy. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I just treat it like anyone else. I didn't know who Clint was at all. I had never heard of his work before. So end up calling up this guy and turns out he lives right up the road from me at the time. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was really cool synchronicity there. And, uh, that's where we're able to, you know, build that, uh, in-person relationship and now, we're starting to work together. So it's been a lot of fun. And then, uh, through Clint, I met Beth and then through Beth, uh, or I guess you watching both Beth and Clint's channels, you saw me. So yeah, I, I've kept this information private for quite some years, but last year I decided to just come out with it and, uh, get over the fear of being, you know, a public, uh, YouTuber or whatever. And, uh, just figured people could benefit from, what they, sh you know, from the real meat that they should have instead of just the, well, the constant psyops and the alternative space that we're talking about earlier and that Beth was alluding to. So that, that's what really inspired me to come out with this. Uh, otherwise I would just, you know, kept doing what I've been doing all these years, but it's been a lot of fun working with people and I love seeing the light bulb turn on in their heads. So. Oh man, I'm glad you came on stage. <laughs> There's probably 50 people listening to my voice right now that could teach us stuff that nobody else has figured out the way they figured it out. If they wanted to just come on and play, <laughs> as uh, Dylan says, the gods will look kindly upon you. <laughs> Nothing to fear. It's good for you. Get up here. But yeah, do you want to, Beth, do you want to comment on all this? For sure. One of the things that's been so interesting for me is delivering good news that you discover people don't really want. They get addicted to the fear thing. They get addicted to all of that adrenaline that comes when you think the, the famine is coming and the, you know, dollar is going to die and you need to dig a, a hole in your backyard and put all your wealth in there and hold on to your gold and your silver, which is in itself a kind of psyop. And so. It's been just very interesting to see, you know, I have people coming at me, attacking me actually about Brandon and they're like, oh, Brandon's way. It's, you know, like evil. And I, and I actually, my response to that is there's no Brandon's way. He's just doing what the normal people do, right? The normal, often elites. And it's, it's our, our side so-called that has invented all of this sort of strategy. And, you know, it sounds good. It makes sense. There's Patriot some mythology. Patriot mythology. There's some, there, there's logic to it. It, it, sh it should work. There's reason, there's no reason it shouldn't work is often the, the phrase that I hear from the gurus in that space. But, you know, so that was, that was what gave Brandon a lot of cre credibility. First, it was, uh, was Clint. 
And, uh, and Jens, you introduced me to Clint. So that's really fun how I got connected to him. And, uh, and then, you know, so that, that lent some credibility. I thought, you know, a really smart guy like Clint, super big researcher goes down a lot of rabbit holes that way. Not to say I agree with him about everything. And I'm sure Brendan and I are going to find things we don't agree with too. But because Brendan didn't come from the truth movement, he came from the economic side of things, like the nuts and bolts, the numbers and the way things actually are. So he was able to deliver a message that, didn't come with all of that crap. I'll just say, <laughs> yeah, people didn't like it. They don't like, they don't like the simple, you know, bold face facts. You know, what, what's good about the Patriot mythos, if you will, is like any other mythology as an allegory for your own spiritual development. And in particular, Clint's gigantic straw man book. You know, when I first heard him talking about his original research, you know, or his older research, he's come, he's come into a different place now, <laughs> a more practical place, maybe a little more grounded, uh, closer to the middle, maybe. But when I first heard him talking about the, the spiritual ramifications of the legal system and the very real word magic, trickery, sorcery that does come into play with the legal realm, the epiphanies that it sparked in me and the, you know, it just touched me in a, deep place. It gave me a lot of inspiration. I'll never forget how uh, meaningful it was to realize that the law is a mirror to our spiritual development too. And our, how we interface with it, you know, if we're, if we feel like it's all out to get us, you know, we're in a, we're, we're in a hell of our own making. And it's like any other aspect of the world, any other tool in the world, it's how you use it and why you use it. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'll just quickly say that both Brandon and Clint joined my Primal Power private domain themed course recently. And uh, it was super enlightening and super, you know, a great contribution to because I have some of the knowledge. Again, I've been studying, even though I've created my own private association, there's still lots that needs to go into that infrastructure to make it bona fide. But uh, their con- their contribution really was invaluable to come in and uh, bring the facts. And because Clint, he can separate you know, that Patriot mythology took that, that, um, that straw man, um, element and, and embellished it into this whole world. So that even you got guys like Alphonse Fagiolo saying like, Oh, that's just, you know, BS, your mom never sold you off to the government with the birth certificate and all that kind of thing. But there is still that kernel of truth that we can't operate in the public without that account. And what does that mean? And, you know, I like Clint's point about that we are indentured slaves and there's no spiritualizing your way out of that. Although I'll say when you have the spiritual truth that you're free, you act more free and people do treat you more like you're free too. That That's a real thing. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to pretend <laughs> that the public doesn't exist and your relationship with it doesn't exist, then I see people going to jail and getting in trouble and paying thousands and thousands of dollars. So, yeah, I'm pretty grateful to have found this. Awesome, man. Brandon, do you uh, have anything you want to add to this before maybe we get into your slides? Yeah, no, I, um, I you know, definitely concur what both of you said and uh you know before i present what i do i just ask the audience to kind of remove 
I guess their normalcy bias and uh, try to s- not see the information as opposing, but see the information as something new to take in. Okay. So yeah, start from the, the, remove your preconceived notions, put your old self on the shelf and just take this in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, when it comes to the, uh, you asked me to uh, talk about the true private. So I, I'm definitely going to get into that. And, uh, you know, the whole term private domain, it kind of gets uh, glorified as its own area of law. Um, but it actually, when you look into it, it consists of different parts of uh, different things inside of the law structure. So it's not really just one base of law. It's uh, several moving parts that you can use. Uh, to get what you want, which, and what we're talking about is privacy. Uh, and what I focus on is not only privacy, but asset protection and estate planning. So we can definitely uh, get into that here in the, in the slides. You want me to move on? Just let me know. Yeah, sure. We can go. Yeah. So this is just kind of what I'm all going to cover. Um, PMAs we'll cover first, uh, business, trust, and then towards the end, I'll kind of talk about why I focus so much on asset protection and estate planning. And then at the end of it, we'll have a roadmap that uh, kind of gives you a clear picture. So, yeah, a little bit about Safe Haven Portfolio Management. That's the company uh, that I run. Uh, I look to empower entrepreneurs, investors, or everyday people that want to become both. And there's no reason why everyday people cannot become both. And you can still be those two things, even with a job, um, and then eventually leave the job if, if that's needed. Now, some cases, people just quit their job and just go all in. I think that's great. It depends on your risk tolerance. But so anyways, um, what I like to do is I like to use already existing systems that have worked for people for a long, long time. I'm not reinventing the wheel. Um, I'm doing what I learned from older people when I was younger. And I saw real life examples of, okay, this is exactly the outcome that I want. I need to replicate what they did. So in that, you know, I, I demonstrate risk hedging strategies and solution for people. And really my job is to give people that financial acumen as well as financial optionality in their life. And that's going to involve pro- privacy protocols. And really with my whole point is so that you can become uncollectible. Uh, your assets become invisible, all that kind of good stuff that we we want, whether we know it or not. So we can, we can get into the next slide. Yeah. Uncollectible. I like that. I also like the word uncontrollable. <laughs> that's my primary gain. In yeah. 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 That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of like I was touching on a few minutes ago, my goal is to make your assets and assets some people think, well, that just means real estate or stocks or something. Well, no, your business, your intellectual property, um, even like a car property. I won't really say that's an asset, but let's just call that a property item. I want those all to be off grid and invisible to anyone trying to sue me uh, or the lawyers that they hire that are trying to sue me. Right. <laughs> so in my structuring, I focus on having it so my structures are unpierceable. And then also I can curate my tax treatment. And we'll get into that a little bit later, the whole tax thing. Uh, like Clint says, I'm not 
telling people to just, you know, not giving people tax shelters. What I'm just showing you is that you have different choices on how you want to go about the tax thing. So we can talk about that. But really, um, you know, the old moniker that we all probably know by now from John D. Rockefeller, oh, nothing, control everything, right? That's that's a quick uh, encapsulation of my system. Uh, really, my system is what people learn from <laughs> people like John D. Rockefeller. And hey, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. He he gave us the revelation of the method uh, just with that quote. And if you see what he actually did in his structuring of his life and the Rockefellers, unlike the Vanderbilts and the rest of them, the Rockefellers are still going strong, richer than ever, even though John D. Rockefeller's way dead. <laughs> so the legacy continues. And really, we can do the same for ourselves and develop our bloodlines. Uh, I'm not saying we have to inbreed or anything like they do, but I think we should focus on improving our our family's dynasty. So between what uh, you just said is just crucial. The actual accumulating of well, tangible wealth, not debt notes, but real, real stuff that brings prosperity and happiness that can be passed forward to our progeny. That's the you know the big boogeyman. They if there's anything that we're being distracted from by the constant warring of red and blue or truther and sheeple or what have you. It's it's the thriving and passing forward of the wealth that you generate to future generations. Exactly. And that's something that the space just does not talk about, but this is the most important stuff. Forget all of the truther stuff. This is the real deal. I mean, this is what we, at least I think we should be focusing on. <laughs> So now I kind of mentioned the capital markets earlier. So what I, what I also help people with is uh, setting up their investment portfolios. And if they have enough capital in the right situation, I can show them how to emulate a hedge fund portfolio manager as well. So between all of the fake trading gurus and the 401ks and the shitty financial advisors <laughs> that are in our lives, um, I show people how to get rid of those things and we can do it on our own. It's really not that difficult uh, with the right direction. And uh, we can do it in a way that we're hedged out directionally in our investments so that if if my stock investments, uh, let's say the stock market, for some unknown reason crashes because of a black swan like uh, the scamdemic, I'm not going to lose my shirt because I was hedged out on my stock allocations. And no, a hedge isn't holding gold. That is not a hedge. Because remember, back during the scamdemic crash, gold crashes everything else. So it's all correlated. Not, gold or silver is not a hedge on black swan events. So, so I do show people how to emulate a professional portfolio manager, make your money work for you. So really what I want to help people with is first get the cash flow going. And then once you get the cash flow established or multiple cash flows, then you can funnel that revenue into your investment portfolio. And that is the formula on how to get rich once you get those two things going. So, but first and foremost, I want to set the context that in the safe haven portfolio system, we blend in for privacy. Okay. We're not going to use strategies and tools that make us stick out like a sore thumb, like all this stuff that we're inundated with in the alternative space. I'm not doing anything woo woo. Um, I'm doing what has worked and makes us not stick out, which I think that's where maximum privacy is found when you're not sticking out and we're blending in. And Honestly, blending in creates less headache for us. Let's be honest. I don't want to drive down the road without a license plate and a driver's license and get pulled over every time I drive, right? So, 
So we, we got to prioritize things and choose a picker battles and the right to travel. Um, that just, it just doesn't mean what people think it means. <laughs> so, so anyways, I don't want to do gamble with that. And I don't want to gamble with, um, having to go to court at all. In fact, my whole system is to prevent you from going to court in the first place. I don't want to gamble on the, on the fact that I could lose or win in court because I don't want to learn all the, I think it's good to learn the court procedures and all that, but um, really if you. Best way to win is not play the game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, why would you take advice from people that have been in and out of jail when you could take advice from people that have never been in jail? So. (laughs) Never been to jail. (laughs) Good for you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's really bad because a lot of people are taking advice from gurus that are actually career criminals when you look into it. That applies to the trading gurus, I'm sure. You know, what are like, you know, I see that fake trading gurus. Do you have any uh, red flags that you can point out? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's a good question. So any trading guru that teaches you a day trading strategy, right? That's the first red flag. That's most of them, by the way. That's like 90% of them because it makes them a a ton of money. Uh, They have a conflict of interest. So they're teaching you a high volume trading strategy and they're selling you, of course, on top of that. And with both of those things, you're just going to make them more and more money. The more trades you make, the more commissions they make from your trades with the broker. They're, the broker is that the stockbroker is telling these gurus what to say to you guys so that you do like the, just the dumbest, uh, strategies in trading. Um, and by the way, I don't recommend most people trade. I think most people should be long term investors, but if you have enough capital and you have enough time, which typically is going to be eight hours a week of work, then you can be a, you can take trading seriously and try to emulate a professional portfolio manager. But yeah, the day trading is the biggest red flag. Uh, Another red flag is if um, they're just trying to trade based off charts and that's called technical analysis. Um, Realize if I'm looking in the past and, looking on a stock chart or Bitcoin chart or anything like that, which by the way, I don't push Bitcoin or any cryptos. I don't believe in that. I think cryptos is a whole side up. But anyways, so that's another red flag, but if they're trying to teach you strategies just based on charts or something, that's, it's not going to cut it. You're going to lose your money 90% of the time, 90% of day traders lose 90% of money within 90 days. That's the statistics. So we stay far away from that. The casino. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. When you treat it like that, the, you're just writing the market checks every day. So yeah, don't do that. So I, you know, as someone that's very green in this whole world, could you also illustrate what you mean by long-term investment as opposed to trading? Yeah. So long-term would just be uh, in this example, it would just be piling into uh, let's say an index. Uh, that's what most people can do on their own. Um, you don't need someone like me for that. That's really simple. And you just pile into that. I think most people should be doing that instead of contributing to their 401k or even IRA. What you could do is instead, and we'll get into trust later, but you could set up a trust account with a stock brokerage and you could just pile into an index uh, like the S&P 500. It's really safe. Um, you get a, historically you get an 8% return every year on that, which is pretty good. And, uh, it's very tax efficient if you're a long-term investor. Unlike trading, it's uh, unless you have the right um, 
trust and company structure, you're going to have a high tax liability on those uh, shorter term trades. So and when I say shorter term trades in my system, it's, you know, we can hold positions from one to six months and we're just rotating things out as we see fit uh, based on quantitative and qualitative research. So there's a lot that goes into it, but essentially that's what I recommend people do for long-term investments is something along those lines where you're just piling into a, uh, index like the SP 500. It's just the simplest way to do it. You don't have to pick individual stocks and it's low risk because it's an aggregate of the whole market and you don't have to invest in one company like Apple. And Hey, if Apple all of a sudden, for some reason, something comes up and they can't release their iPhones next year. Well, the stock is going to be pretty, it's going to perform not so well after that news comes out in the months after. So, and that's going to affect their earnings, of course. So in that sense, I don't want to pile into individual companies because there's a lot of risk associated with that. Whereas the index, you lower your risk and you still get a good return. Do you have ways of helping people navigate maybe like moral issues they would have with investing in one thing versus another? Yeah, yeah. Because some people are like, oh, I don't want to invest in the stock market. I have my moral issues with it. Okay, well. The first thing I'll tell someone that says that is, well, look, uh, all your dollars that you spend, it ultimately goes to the stock markets at the end of the day. Um, through the chain of transactions, it's ultimately going to go to those exact companies. So, Kind of like vegans who are eating vegetables where little bunnies were crunched up by a combine tractor to harvest those vegetables. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And same thing with banks. People are like, oh, I'm not involved with banks because they're evil. Okay. First of all, not all companies, not all uh, banks are evil. We, we got to stop demonizing these things. These are tools, right? That we can use and should use. I don't want to keep all my money in, <laughs> stored in gold or cash in my house. That's ridiculous. No, I'm going to use the banking system to do business, invest, and uh, get the things I need to be done. So you know, that's the first thing I tell them. Another thing is, well, they'll say, well, I don't want to invest in, uh, I don't want to fund the pharma companies. It's like, okay, great. Then buy the index. That's not the individual company itself. Beth, you got any thoughts on where we've been so far? Yeah, actually, I was just going to pull up a note. So let's see if I don't butcher this. But um, when we were looking at the victim archetype in my course, there was, I just saw how you know, the public is something that has been demonized. We've made it evil. It, you know, there's a railing against the machine. There's the take down the government, take down the banks kind of sentiment. And my realization is that the public now there, of course, is corruption and there is evil people in there. So that's not to deny that. But when it comes to, you know, what we're looking for from the public, we're unconsciously looking for safety to survive. Like, oh, when I fall down, I've heard say, people in my life say this all the time. Oh, well, if I fall down, that's okay. There's some unemployment insurance or welfare if need be, or, you know, there's some safety net for me. And so for me, the flip in studying that was not to look at the public as a source of safety, but a source of tools. And to recognize how the private was, or pardon me, the public was actually designed to protect us in the private. Like that was, was its original purpose. So those were both enlightening parts of all of that. Yeah. I have a kind of rhetorical phrase, but it, there is dialectical truth in it. And it is that uh, the public can benefit my private 
cool beans. So, and, you know, for someone like me, with my particular skill set, when it comes to the markets, I can use all sorts of different public information and profit uh, vastly off that. So that's the beautiful thing about uh, what Beth's saying about the public realm, let's call it. It, it. See it for what it is. And sure, I want myself to be outside of it as much as possible, but I can still use components of it to enrich in my life and my family's life. So. Speaking of enriching, I got to say thanks to Rachel for the super chat and Brother Marty Leeds of the Gnostic Academy. By the way, guys, go over to the Gnostic Academy YouTube channel. Marty just posted a really cool interview with the lead guitarist of the Deftones. Surprising how many things he was hip to. Uh, I mean, maybe not surprising. Deftones are pretty cool. So that was a pleasant surprise. I enjoyed that with Jennifer while we were having dinner. So thanks for the super chats, you two. And uh, now your intermission is concluded and we'll continue with Brandon's presentation. All right. So, uh, yeah, so PMAs. So <laughs> during the last couple of years, and I wasn't expecting this at all, I've been using private associations since 2016 or 2015, either way, doesn't matter. But yeah, during the last couple of years, though, PMAs have been taking off. Uh, you know, given the scamdemic and everything. So now we have a lot of PMA teachers or advisors, which a lot of them call themselves now, in the space. So you try to look up PMAs online and you, you find the PMA teachers, uh, various marketing sales pitches. And 99% of them say that to have your PMA be truly private, you must have the PMA interfacing with a nonprofit structuring. And those people will say that they are either a faith-based 508C1A organization, church, ministry, etc. I mean, there's a lot of different ways they try to phrase it. And so you, you go on these sites, you do Google search on PMAs, and attached to the names that you guys would probably know in the alternative law space if you followed it, <laughs> will often have disclaimers on the bottom of their website saying nothing they say is legal or tax advice, and you should seek a professional. So that's kind of a red flag for me, you know. Um, so we can go on the next slide and see what that looks like. So I pulled off the, this one off of one partic particular website. Um, oh, shoot, I, I was supposed to cross out the names in there, but anyways, that doesn't matter. But this is a good example of, um, you know, in my opinion, this is kind of dodgy, and maybe they're doing it to protect themselves. I don't know. but. To me, this is an instant red flag. So anyways, yeah, we go on the next one. <laughs> Can you read it for those of us without good enough eyes? I enlarged. Oh, them. yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. So, yeah, so read it. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Chance. You got a good narrator voice. <laughs> <laughs> the content on this site is not intended to be legal, tax or professional advice. Users, including all visitors of this site, should consult a bar registered attorney or tax professional or other appropriate professional for any legal or tax or other matters. The content on this site is for informational purposes only as an expression of our ministry to the world. Any downloadable material, including but not limited to audio, typewritten or video format, is for personal entertainment and individual private education. We'll leave out the name of the yeah yeah we can leave out <laughs> the, the organization. Rest. I'm yeah. probably well-meaning, but 
Yeah, I think a lot of people in this space are well-intentioned. Um, I just don't think they know what they don't. I don't think they, yeah, they don't know what they don't know. So um, I think a lot of people are well-intentioned. It's just uh, some people have had to, some of these teachers have had to learn the hard lessons because they tried to reinvent the wheel. And now they're, some of them have finally realized this, this is not the way to go. This So we'll, we'll get into the 508 thing. So, so what they'll tell you is these PMA gurus that, uh, they'll tell you how they define what a 508C1A is. And there's endless myths about nonprofits out there, but this one in particular is the most popular in the private realm. So these gurus, they say that a 501C1A is an alternative to the typical 501C3 that we see all churches are, uh, right? You know, we go to any church down the road from where we're at, they're always going to be 501C3s. Um, so now I've some I've seen on some sites that the gurus tell you that your business slash PMA can be a 508C1A. And so the narrative is 501C3s are government controlled, not undergone, which, yeah, sure, I can agree with that. But then they say 501C1As, and notice that the 508CIA, it almost looks like CIA, are free organization that's automatically tax exempt and does not have to report or comply with the IRS. Right. And it sounds great. Gosh, it'd be great if it were true. But the sad truth is they're misleading people because none of these sales pitches about the 508 are true. They're pitching you rhetoric, whether they know it or not. They might be just repeating things that they've heard from other people to sell their courses or services. And they don't have any actually factual basis in law or case law, et cetera, to back up their selling points. And it sounds good to a lot of people. So, you know, I totally get how people can get wrapped up in it. And uh, Brendan, didn't you say that the 508C1A is actually a tax code, which it makes is. it so funny that they th- they're they're promoting it will make you exempt from tax when it's even a code itself? Yeah, yes, yeah. so we'll get into that. But yeah, you're correct that 508C1As are just a tax code and it isn't what people think it is. <laughs> so we can get into that on in the next slide. So this is the ultimate, just like, wow, truth about 508s. 508C1As don't exist. I just got to say real quick, I just typed in 508C1A tax code into Google. Yeah. The first result is destiny508s.com. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it seems like, you know, we're probably in the realm of this type of guruship. Oh, absolutely. I. They sound familiar. I feel like I've heard of them. I've, I've had a lot of people reach out to me the last year and they went through people like these gurus and then they figure out, Hey, this isn't working. This isn't, <laughs> I found your work and you, you told me all these things. It's like, wow, like none of this stuff is being accounted, accounted for by these gurus. So yeah, the hard truth is a 508C1A is not an entity. It is not a recognized structure of conveyance. It's not any type of recognized organization structure. It is not a tax or religious status, like these people are saying, right? Like, oh, I have a 508 status. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that doesn't exist. 508 C, 508C1A, I had a typo on there, but it's supposed to be 508C1A, is a section in the IRS tax code, section 508. So if you go to USC 26, section 508, this section 508 is just law that spells out how 501c3s 
apply to get a tax exempt status and be recognized as such. So down below, I took a little screenshot of USC and sure enough, section 26, subsection 508, special rules with respect to section 501c3 organization. So this, <laughs> this 508 code, which like Beth was saying earlier, it's a tax code that only applies to 501c3s. <laughs> so these people misinterpret this whole section of the tax code saying that this section of the IRS code says, hey, you don't have to comply with the IRS. And, you know, it's, it's laughable that people are not only misinterpreting this whole section of the code, but then they try to weaponize it against the IRS. So it's just like the so-called state nationals trying to redefine what USC Title VIII and the immigration office says what a national and non-citizen national actually is. And if you guys want to learn more about state nationals and their whole fraud, uh, Clint has the best work on that at anyone in the space. Um, yeah, so he, he exhausted the subject pretty pretty thoroughly in some fairly recent episodes of Red Pill Sunday School. He did. So definitely check that out, guys. Um, it's really interesting to unpack that. So and now, would you think that people are also willing to pass this around as something that they think worked for them because it takes a while for the bureaucracy to catch up with the blunder? Well, sometimes they won't even catch up with it because a 508 is not a natural thing. So it, it makes people think that they accomplished something when in fact you didn't do anything. Uh, you didn't set up an actual <laughs> recognizable structure. So it makes people feel like they did something when it's just a bunch of words on a page. It doesn't actually convey or do anything. So yeah, this is kind of the wordplay that the gurus do, whether they know it or not, they get stuck into this wordplay. So. <laughs> So this is a section of uh, USC 26 and uh, yeah, new or it says right here, new organizations must notify secretary being the secretary of state that they are applying for recognition of section 51C3 status exempt or except as provided in subsection C. And so people say, oh, well here, subsection C says that uh, I don't have to apply to get the tax exempt status, right? <laughs> but that's actually not true. So a church is considered automatically to be an organization not an association. So people try to blend the two and it's two separate things. And even association created under the organization of a church is still part of the church, which is an organization, which is a 51C3. If you're wanting to be a legitimate organization and church. But if I say that I'm a 508 <laughs> church, then that's not a real thing, of course. So you cannot be separate or foreign foreign is another word for private, from the public law uh, that the church organization is already under. So if you ditch the organization that you call your church and just form an informal private association in its stead, you can have your church, unorganized congregation, let's call it, and avoid such federal status altogether because you're now acting private instead of in a public corporation, which is a 501, or yes, 501c3, or organization like a 508 that, again, doesn't exist and won't give you any protection. So really the real power is in the private association itself. You don't have to attach it to a 508 or 51C3. So this very much shows, again, the power of privacy and remaining <laughs> outside and foreign from the public law, which there are tools that we can use to get that. 
If I could jump in here, I was just going to say it was super helpful for me to hear uh, a really, um, I don't want to say dumbed down, but, you know, there's so many highfalutin ideas about what the private is. And in reality, it's just your life. We're like fish in water looking for water. But it's, you know, it's this conversation, it's your relationship with your children, it's your choices of how to stock your household and run your family. Would you agree, Brendan? I would add to that maybe uh, everything real as opposed to uh, legal fictions that we use as tools. Uh, Very well said, both of you. Yes, that's exactly my point. And, you know, private associations, they already exist and we'll get into that later, but you know, like everyone in my email list, that's a private association. Uh, us three right now, that's a private association. Now, it's not like an official legal private association. It's just, it's just part of how nature works, right? Uh, an association is a relationship at the end of the day of some sort. So, yeah, we can get more into that. So, yeah, when you go down the church and ministry uh, road, like these gurus tell you to go down to, uh, Either they don't know about the IRS 14 checkpoint list or they're ignoring it. A lot of them have found out recently and they're still pushing their old old narrative because <laughs> it's making them money. So, but the IRS has what's called a 14 checkpoint list for churches and ministries. So when the IRS looks into structures that qualifies a legitimate church, they work off of the criteria 14 requirements. So as you can see, uh, the first one is distinct legal existence. Again, a 508C1A is not a distinct legal existence. <laughs> it's only a code for 51C3. So you got to have a 51C3 if you're wanting to be a church, right? And then a recognized creed and form of worship. Uh, so that can kind of look like a denomination, stuff like that. Um, a defined and distinct ecclesiastical government. Um, that's fine and dandy. You can get all that together. Not too complicated. A formal code of doctrine and discipline. So I, I can read down the list, but I think you guys get it. It's um, it's a lot of these things that the 508 gurus just never say that you should have. And, you know, I can guarantee 100% of these 508s uh, or ministries or churches out there aren't following these things. <laughs> they might have one or two, but that's pretty much the maximum that they have. And uh, to the right, I, I display some case law for you guys to look at if you want to look into how the IRS applies this 14 checkpoint list when they're scrutinizing organizations. And uh, there's been some bad cases like these listed where people just lose because they didn't know how this, all this stuff worked. If I could chime in as well, I actually named the House of Free Will, which is my private association. I named it a ministry under the advice of someone saying that that was the safer way to go, right? That you, if you, when you had a ministry, then they were more likely to leave you be and let you do your more charitable work in the world. And it turns out to be the opposite that actually flags you and brings attention to you. Yeah, it's putting yourself under a microscope. Um, I'll share a quick story. I had a, I have a local f- friend who's a pretty successful business guy. And uh, he had a, he and a few buddies, uh, they went all, all in together on a private jet. And then they're like, okay, well, we got to set up some type of legal structure to own this plane and run the maintenance and all that. So they decided to go down the 501c3 route, uh, the nonprofit route. 
And uh, they messed up. And these are pretty smart guys. I mean, they had the right accountants. They had the right lawyers. But they messed up one thing in the compliance requirements. And that one thing, that one mistake, it led from uh, that to them getting audited. And eventually the plane went away and they lost a ton of money. So you don't want to mess around with this nonprofit stuff. The uh, distinct ecclesiastical government. How distinct is that? Like somebody is the boss of somebody else enough or do we need to have like a whole canon law jurisdiction? Yeah. So it's kind of more on, well, it has components of both of those things you said, but, and I'll later touch on this in the presentation, but you have to be careful because a canon law jurisdiction, it's not recognizable and it doesn't get you outside of civil law. And there's case law on that too. So yeah, it's, <laughs> so yeah, you do want to have those things if you are a church, but just realize and see it for what it is. It's not like, oh, this is going to protect you from everything. So yeah, so uh, yeah, this is really important. So yeah, in the American, American Guidance Foundation, Inc. versus U.S., uh, the court said that at a minimum, a church must include a body of believers that assembly regularly in order to worship, and it must be reasonably available to the public. So you might want to think about that. Again, reasonably available to the public. But how is that private? That's not a private association like these people are telling you. And it's funny because since last year, I've seen these same gurus push living in the private, now holding Zoom church services every Sunday because they figured out, some of them at least, what they were doing was <laughs> using a PMA and then claiming it was a church while it wasn't an actual church. So the whole thing is so disingenuous. So they're LARPing to be a church because they're scared of the 14-point checklist that the IRS does and failing it and then getting audited if they haven't already, right? So you're putting up a facade and you're not... So you'd be better off to just run a, run a business as a <laughs> more kind of upfrontly and honestly. And yeah. uh, I mean, I think you're going to go into more of how to work with your assets to be uncontrollable and untrackable in a more authentic and honest way. Yeah, exactly. There is no private way to have a true recognizable church or ministry when it comes to the IRS and the, the courts. So, you know, if you want to do stuff in the private, just do it privately. You know, I don't if I want to give my vegetables to my neighbors or my friends, I don't need a PMA for that. I don't need to set up a ministry for that. It's just ridiculous. You know, like I, when I was a kid, you know, I was shoveling, I'd go door to door and shovel people's driveways. Did I need a PMA for that? Absolutely not. Right. It's just your, it's just life. Yeah. <laughs> the private is just life. I really yeah. enjoy that point. Yeah, I exactly. want to also ask though, how, how hard would the hammer come down if some of these points were shown to be not, uh, adhered to is yeah. it vary from case to case based on how much could be extorted out of the organization yeah it, it depends what the organization was doing and the dollar amount they're working with but in all of those cases i had on the last slide if you read them you'll see that uh yeah they didn't get any tax exemption uh they, they lost all of those supposed benefits they thought they'd get and most people they they get attracted to the nonprofit, the five weight thing because they think oh it's going to give me give me taxes M status. I won't have to pay taxes, but I'm sorry. Uh, it didn't work out for these people. <laughs> and aren't and, uh, there other things that have to be followed to 
count as a 508 in terms of like, you know, certain types of tolerance or <laughs> recognition of things that are social justice ideas? Yeah, there, there's some things that a 501c3 has to do in order to get the 508 um, uh, rules to apply to them. So, yeah, it's it's not just simply, oh, I can call myself a 508 non-tax exempt. It's, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just not going to work. And I, I have another slide uh, I'll show you guys. But uh, before I share the other slide, I actually want to present something I forgot to put in this presentation. So I'm going to share my screen real quick. Uh, let's see here. Can I make a point while you're finding that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, just that that's such a carrot that's dangled around the taxes. So again, the public's been made the enemy, the taxes have been made the enemy. And then that's the goal of people moving into the private. And I was lucky to learn early on that wasn't one of the psyops, although it, it, it is a bit of a gray area. And it makes you go for the wrong thing. Like then, then you're actually hungry for the public, right? Then you're, <laughs> then you're trying to get public money yeah. And and you're not focusing on building and living in the private. Yeah, exactly. If if you're making all your business decisions and investment decisions based on uh, taxes alone, I'm sorry, you're just it's going to affect your this decision making in a really bad way. So yeah, what I pulled up was Taylor versus Commissioner. Now, this case in particular really blows out the whole 508 narrative out of the water. <laughs> so I highlighted just the key area. This organization called uh, Taylor, they thought that the 508C1A, they interpreted the same way that these gurus do, right? And uh, the IRS came to found that, hey, just because you say if Section 508 doesn't mean that you're tax exempt, in fact, you're not tax exempt at all. <laughs> you did not apply as a 501C3 to be a tax exempt organization. As you can see under here, uh, the contributors must prove the church's right to an exemption under Section 501c3 in order to be entitled to a deduction for their contribution. So in this case in particular, uh, someone donated to this supposed 508, and they're trying to get a tax write-off for their donation. Because <laughs> uh, normally in a 501c3, if you make a donation to a tax-exempt approved organization, you'll get that deduction on your tax return. So that's why a lot of rich people do philanthropy, right? <laughs> Stuff like that. There's a lot of tax incentives. So anyway, someone was trying to get that same incentive with this 508, and Iris is just saying, hey, uh, nope, this isn't real. Because, um, yeah, someone was trying to challenge the commissioner on that and uh, ended up, you know, uh, hurting them. So, yeah, I just want to throw that in there. That's probably the most important one to look at of all the cases I touched in particular 508. So yeah, and this is an EIN letter. So now I've had clients that have followed the exact processes. They've gone through these gurus <laughs> and uh, these gurus will tell them all sorts of things, but in particular, they'll tell you to get an EIN, which is an employment identification number. Uh, you can think of it like the social security number for nonprofits and businesses and trusts. Um, so in order to open a bank account for any of those types of organizations, you have to get the EIN first. Uh, that's been a thing since the 2000s uh, because banks are, well, they're private associations and they they make the rules, right, to become a member. Notice they call the you member. Now, it doesn't mean they're completely private in everything they do. Private association is just part of their business model, the banks. 
it, it goes into trusts and other things that we won't really uh, get into right now. But uh, so anyways, these gurus tell you to get the EIN for 508. And so one of my clients, one of my members, she went through the process and the guru told her, okay, now that I gave you your 508 paperwork, now you have to uh, call the IRS and fax them this particular paperwork. And you have to emphasize that you are a 508, not a 501c3. <laughs> Put it in bold letters. I mean, highlight it if you want. You have to just reiterate to the IRS. So she does that. And then she applies for the EIN. And then this is the letter that she gets back. So it might be hard for you guys to read on the screen at home, but um, let's see. Yeah, so right here, application for recognition of exemption, tax exemption, under Section 501c3 of the IRS code. Uh, it says, tax exempt status for your organization, uh, you must apply for the the tax exempt status for your organization you can't it just is an automatic thing you have to apply for it and the iris has to approve it right and then along with that comes with a lot of compliance you got to be fully transparent in your financials it, it's not a road you want to go down if you're a business person or trying to start a venture right so anyways this is just another great example of hey you, you use this five-way process this is a the letter that they're going to give you back and it just completely dispels the whole narrative of the five-way thing so, yeah, we can get on the next slide. Thank you. Yeah, and then uh, tax exempt, right? So, so yeah, in that case I was showing you earlier, the court noted that uh, the IRS developed the 14 checkpoints, which we went over. And, uh, you know, so, again, you want to make sure that if you wanted to start a church, you should be actual recognized church and not just call yourself one to be a tax shelter, right? That's just so disingenuous. So. It's important, though, to know the difference between churches and religious organizations. So organizations can include non-denominational ministries, interdenominational ministries, and others um, whose principal purpose is the study or investment of religion. Uh, but in IRS publication 1828, page 7, it says that unlike churches, religious organizations that want taxes of status must apply to the IRS to get that status unless they receive under 5k per annum and let's just call that revenue right so a religious organization is under the authority of a religious body that is a church and a church can only be a 51c3 which can only be a 51c3 corporation <laughs> uh, filed with your secretary of state and approved by the irs so in the irs publication 1828 it clearly says faith-based ministries which a lot of these gurus call themselves organizations, associations do not full, fall uh, under or qualify for the mandatory tax exemption status only for churches that meet the requirements of Section 51C3. So there's really interesting comments here from <laughs> Ignoramus Troglodyte. <laughs> That's a great YouTube uh, handle, but he's talking about the 501C that its design is to corporately capture the church and that it's really going against what the Bible says in the first place to not sign on the dotted line with the uh, serpent government, you yeah. know, becoming a 501c claiming Christian, you're kicking yourself <laughs> out of the garden in, in a sense. And I That's totally agree. Stuff. 
Yeah. If I were to start a church, I wouldn't go down the 501c3 route. Um, it, look, I would just do it privately. I know I don't need to call myself 508. It could just be a group of us that meet together at one of our houses or something like that. Maybe we meet at a park. I don't know. It, it, the point is the church is not the organization, the paperwork. It's, it's the body of the believers coming together, the body of Christ. Um, again, that's the private association in and of itself right there what the Bible is describing. You know that little fish logo that we see on the back of cars? Well, back in the day, back in Roman times, uh, the Christian church was actually made illegal. So they had, back then, to, they had to meet in private. They had to have a private association. <laughs> Again, it was just a natural one. They didn't have the paper thing. So that little fish symbol would be an indicator for people. Oh, okay, yeah, this person's part of our group, and this is where we're going to meet, stuff like that. So... A lot of people don't know the origin of all that symbol, but it relates to what we're talking about in a fascinating way. Oh man, I don't want to derail the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the the ichthys fish does go back really far into yeah. prior than to Christianity versions of yeah. the of the church. That is right. those that see nature and uh, the creation and understand what we're being taught by the Creator through it. But I will say, yeah. you know, in my uh, this, the, I honestly, I think that the whole Romans banning the Christian church might be another type of another, like an older version of patriot mythology. I don't, <laughs> I've never found yeah. that in uh, the Roman legal code. I haven't ever found a receipt on that, on the persecuting of Christians, but that's a side subject. Yeah, it could be. And I totally relate to the whole thing you're saying that, hey, it actually goes pre-Christianity. A lot of this stuff does. Um, so, yeah, very Absolutely. well said. So, so yeah, in the Universal Life Church versus the United States, uh, they found that the plaintiff's tax exempt status was not legitimate. And uh, this group in particular, Universal Life Church, was giving tax advice and tax-related information to its members. Does that sound familiar <laughs> to these uh, five-way gurus, right? So... Anyways, this is a really good example. Um, we don't have to read through all of this because we have a lot to get through. But another thing I want to cover in Iris Publication 517, because uh, a lot of gurus will tell you, oh, you just call yourself an ordained minister, and then you can receive a housing allowance, stuff like that, all tax-free. Uh, but that only applies to certain situations. So, and by the way, you have to be an ordained minister with an actual 51C3, right, to get that legitimate housing allowance. Um, and exclusability from gross income and income tax, stuff like that. So, but even with all that, you still don't get exemption from the self-employment tax, right? So if it was your nonprofit that you set up, you're still subject to self-employment tax. So this is only applicable for 51c3 since again, five ways don't exist, right? So yeah, private associations, not PMAs, right? I, now I use PMA just because everyone knows what that is now, but if I were to communicate it as private association, most people wouldn't pick up on that. But when you look into the techn technicality of it, private associations in, in the States in particular have been around for a long time. So, um, even before a nonprofit, any of that kind of stuff existed. And again, like we covered, private associations, they already exist in nature. So a family is a great example of that. Um, excludes a lot more people than includes. I can only be part of a family if I'm related by blood or adopted, right? I can't just say, hey, I'm part of someone's family. <laughs> uh, 
And then, uh, you know, in our society, well, we have societies <laughs> that are also private associations. Um, and this is all an old case law. You can go on Yale Law Library. You can dig all this information up and you'll see that, yes, a lot of these societies that we know about, like the Skull and Bones and all that kind of stuff, were private associations, not PMAs, right? Uh, HOAs, now this is a great example of private association. And they get a lot of bad rap, but what I've come to find is that we can actually use them for a lot of good. We just need to be able to curate that ourselves and not let the Karens run off of the whole HOA thing. <laughs> uh, states, the states in and of itself is a private association. Uh, nation states, uh, that's a private association in and of itself. And, and, you know, some examples, as you guys probably know by now, uh, the Bar Association, well, that's a private association. That's really well-known. Uh, we had the George Washington Society. We have a lot of these historical societies out there. Uh, we had the medical boards. We got Harvard's Black and White Society, which is their equivalent of the skull and bones. So these are just some quick examples. You guys probably might have already heard about all this, but I just wanted to touch on that. So now these PMA gurus, they rely on constitutional rights, such as the First and Fourteenth Amendment. And if you follow Clint's work, you'll realize the Fourteenth Amendment actually enslaves us. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, franchise so, like a McDonald's. Exactly right. Freedom. It means franchise. And, uh, yeah, a franchise can apply to a lot of different things. Uh, when it comes to our government, you know, a lot of people say the federal reserve is private, but it's actually not. And they had to pay a franchise tax to the United States. But anyway, this is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyways, so in this Supreme court ruling, NAACP versus Alabama, the state of Alabama, Alabama was accusing this group of operating in Alabama without registration of their business. But uh, this got sent to the Supreme Court. The judge at the time was Justice Harlan. I hate calling him justice. Uh, but anyways, Judge Harlan was called. Uh, established. He, he kept saying over and over, no, these people have the right of association. And he kept saying the right of association uh, treated freedom of association as derivative from the First Amendment rights to freedom of speech and assembly and as ancillary to them. Now, this is the case law that a lot of the 508 gurus have used, and they kind of figure out some things. They're like, oh, look, here's some case law behind associations. And uh, But realize, this <laughs> this isn't going to, in and of itself, grant you full immunity altogether from, let's say, the public realm. Uh, the constitutional points can be icing on the cake, but it's not the base layer. The foundation of how I lawfully establish my property rights uh, is not found in the Constitution, but rather in the private association structure in and of itself and in a trust structure. So we can unpack those things. So now I structure my PMAs in a certain way that is definitely not going to involve a 508C1A or a 501C3 ministry tax exemption status. <laughs> I'm not going to use a nonprofit, none of that stuff. By the way, a nonprofit, it's not what's called a pass-through entity, which we want to use pass-throughs. That's absolutely what we want. So using a nonprofit can actually put yourself under a microscope and there's lots of room to be scrutinized in court and with regulatory bodies like the IRS, of course, right? So now I don't use 501C1As or 501C3s uh, because they don't have the liability protection and I can sue a 501C3 all day. There is no liability separation with these since uh, either the 508 doesn't exist or the 501c3, it doesn't give the liability protection. 
So it's, it's still going to be recognized as you as an individual as far as liability goes. So what does that mean? So basically, technically, based on the law on property rights, since a 51c3 is a corporation, uh, a corporation, it actually can be sued. And you don't get any lawful protection. And that's why they're willing to give you a tax exempt status with the 501c3 corporation, right? But realize taxes are the easiest risk to mitigate. We can get into that later. But in, in a legit nonprofit, when you pay yourself, that would be taxable personal income, right? So that doesn't really mitigate taxes at all with those. And in life, especially in the United States and even Canada, uh, a much riskier aspect in, in the States is not tax liability, but the more risky thing is actually litigation, uh, subpoenas, having a case to defend, right? So we have a lot of these ambulance, ambulance chasing attorneys in the States. You go on the highway, you see all these attorney billboards saying, hey, are you injured? Call me. Sue, let's sue this person, right? We're inundated with that. We've got commercials. Uh, ever since the 1970s, it became legalized for lawyers to advertise their services. And if you look at the graph, ever since they were legally allowed to advertise, litigation skyrocketed, hasn't gone down since. And in fact, it's gone higher and higher by the year. So because of the way I set up businesses and PMAs, um, all the property owned by my structures, they have charging order protection, which means I can't ever be put in a position where I have a case to defend. In fact, I can keep my personal privacy using the public record, uh, using a company to obfuscate uh, my privacy. So my stuff isn't even attached to that. And I can save tens of thousands just avoiding the cost of litigation instead of going through the motions of discovery process, depositions, court appearances, all that horrible stuff you don't want to go through. Trust me. I know two lawyers in particular pretty decently, and both of them specialize in litigation. And they just, they lick their chops when uh, there's some type of structure, like a nonprofit that they can just pick apart all day. And Pierce was called a corporate veil. So you definitely don't want to mess with all that. I don't want to have a contrary to defend in the first place. <laughs> now below, I listed some case law. So the right to sue and be sued is a corporate franchise. So you, you might want to think about that. So if I can sue a nonprofit, well, that means that it is a corporation, right? <laughs> so, and there's another reference I'll make. There is no principle better settled than an unincorporated association cannot, in absence of statute authorizing it, be sued in a society or company name. Baskins versus United Mine Workers, 1921. So wait a second. Did that just say in its company name? <laughs> wait a second. So I can intermix a company with a private association. So we'll get into that on the next slides. You know, what I'm thinking about is how the whole idea of avoiding trying to uh, shelter yourself from taxes, avoid taxation entirely. It seems like uh, maybe a a red herring to be chasing to begin with that the only real protection from being taxed by, you know, the mafia cartel system that is the government and which all governments are and always will be. <laughs> it's yeah. just got a different name would be, you know, the only way to avoid that would be to just have as little commerce in your life as possible. And you have the ability to do that. No one's ever taken that ability away. You, you maybe you'd have to play the monopoly a while to set yourself up to have a space to grow some food. And, but you know, 
we <laughs> we're in a way we're, we're we're privileged to use the commercial system that's available to us. We might not like yeah. a lot of things about it. We might not like what other people do with it, but to be able to trade numbers on a screen for grocery store goods, to be able to pay each other in that, you know, that <laughs> we didn't set up that system. We don't own it. And so yeah. it is what it is. And yeah. the, the way out of it would be to just be as independent from commerce as you possibly can. And that's totally a valid path as well. But I don't think it's uh, healthy to pretend like you can have your cake and eat it too. That is play commerce, but uh, play monopoly, but not ever land on the uh, go to jail space or <laughs> other people's boardwalk with hotels on it. Yeah, you have to be really careful of this stuff. And, um, you know, it, the tax thing, it's there's a few different strategies. You can go down the write off strategy, which I personally don't use. Or you can just go off of your accounting practice, which is a whole nother conversation. But at the end of the day, it's not really a big deal either way for me. Either way, I'm not really concerned about taxes. Um, it's not going to control my decision making. I want to be able to have a setup so that I don't have to worry about being sued. I don't have to worry about a court picking apart what I'm doing. So we can get into that. Um, so yeah, my nothing control everything. Yeah, that's that's a really great encapsulation of the stuff that I do. And, uh, you know, what the alt law space is what I call it. What they push past is the importance of asset protection and estate planning, which you're not going to get with a nonprofit. I'm sorry. <laughs> so if you own your property in your personal name, which most of us do, if you kill someone driving, let's say I'm just using an extreme case, but you know, it does happen. And the family sues you for the death of um, for the death of their family member. Your property can be commandeered by them, and so if you own everything in your name, of course. So now you can have your private contract and association framework to work with people in your private association. So if I'm selling raw milk, great, I can use a private contract. I can use my private association. I can get all that I want to do privately. But you still need to curate your property. Uh, so let's say my residence, my house, so that nothing is in my name anymore. I can't just put my house in a PMA. The county are they're just going to look at and be like, "What the heck is this?" No. So, um, Can I just interject? Are are you saying that like the real devil in the modern usage of the legal system and the ignorance of the legal system is that? people are mixing up their straw man corporate identity with their true self. And thus their all of their actual wealth and what they've accumulated in their life becomes uh, in jeopardy by that. And what you're yeah. saying is there's not that difficult ways to separate what you own from your public identity and thus be insulated from that. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. Uh, it's exactly what my whole point is, is uh, there are tools in place that we can use so that we don't have to have anything in our name anymore. And in fact, some of these tools don't even have to be registered. It can be completely private. So we'll get into how that kind of looks, what applies to what in our lives, stuff like that. But yeah, there's a few different pieces of the monopoly, uh, monopoly pieces that we use. So we'll, we'll get into that, but yeah, you, you had a very well said chance. So now 
my associations, they use the traditional private association structuring that have been around for a long time, over 200 years. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. So just having a PMA contract, because I see a lot of that online, people just say, well, hey, I can just use a PMA contract, and that's fine. But okay, it's not going to cut it because uh, there is no blanket protection in the standard PMA contract templates that I see online. You know, it, everyone's situation is different. I'm selling raw milk. I have very different risks than the guy doing oil changes, right? <laughs> so no, there's no blanket contract that's going to work for everyone. We need to hedge out different risks and spell those out. So you want to utilize asset and cash flow allocation strategies to truly protect you and your family holdings. Private associations aren't the end-all be-all. They're just merely one tool. So in my system, we use limited liability companies. We use private associations if needed. Now, some people, they don't even need private associations. You know, if I'm an IT specialist, let's say I'm an IT company, I don't need a PMA for that. Um, and then what I also use is trust. So we use those three components. Sometimes people need only two out of the three. So, yeah, we can get on to the next one. Okay, so great. So the law, the law space demonizes limited liability companies. And their narrative is always, well, LLCs are corporations, and they make you a taxpayer and under statutes, and it's not private, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, look, first of all, LLCs are not corporations. They're limited liability companies, not corporations. It's a completely different filing. It's not a C-Corp. It's not an S-Corp. That's a whole... If I want to start a C-Corp or an S-Corp, that's its own filing. That's not an LLC. So just because I use a hammer, in this case, this would be the LLC, it doesn't encompass the bench that I'm making. It's just a tool to merely construct the bench. It's not the bench itself, right? So the whole point of why I use the LLC is so that it's a separation from you and the PMA and trust. Now, when you so the difference between a corporation and a company, if I'm getting this right, is members versus shareholders. That is one of the differences. Yes, uh, there's all sorts of different differences, but uh, that's one of the main ones. And also, a corporation um, it has this different sets of uh, of laws or surrounding that, whereas limited liability companies that can be used by everyday people. And I can even use an LLC just to hold title to property. It doesn't even need to be a functioning business. It doesn't need to be brick and mortar. Whereas corporation is kind of more of a formal type of uh, business structure. And if I have a company with over 200 employees, then sure, corporation isn't a bad structure to use. But for most of us, we should not use a, a, a corporation. It has different tax liabilities, which I personally don't like. It gives you, a, uh, it's only good for certain situations, but an LLC can, it was designed and used and is built for everyday people like ourselves. Uh, we actually, it's not an American thing. We adopted it from Germany in the 1970s. Wyoming was the first state to adopt the LLC model. And, and since then, up to today, all states have adopted it. So everyone, uh, every one of us can use LLC and there's not any like, public filings uh you know well there's one the articles of association but uh in some states it doesn't even show who the members are um and even if they do that's fine in the states that do show the members because we can still obfuscate that using a pass-through 
So uh, we can use a holding company or we can use a trust. There's all sorts of tools we can use that give us obscurity in the public record. And I actually want that in the public record because then the attorney just knows right away up front, oh, hey, this guy doesn't act. He owns nothing, controls everything. He's not the main guy behind this company. He's he's using his property rights the way people should. And I'm going to have a hard time suing them. In fact, it's going to be really costly. And if I don't collect, and based on the way I see how he's curating his property rights, it looks like I won't be able to collect. And if I can't collect from my client, we have to pay back taxes on the judgment uh, on the lawsuit. So let's say someone sues me for a hundred grand, but because of the way I structure myself in my business and my uh, estate plan, because it's the way it's structured, even if they have that hundred K judgment overhead, they won't be able to collect from me. And at the end of the year, guess what they're going to have to pay taxes on that hundred thousand dollars. So attorneys anticipate that a lot. And a lot of times when they see someone with this type of setup, which I'll be demonstrating later, when they see that type of setup, then they're going to tell their client, look, I'm not going to take this case. Because a lot of these cases, um, they're contingent. Uh, the attorney is contingent uh, on being paid at the end of it when they win the lawsuit, right? So they don't want to work for free <laughs> or be or look bad in the bar association. So there's, you know, they want to win, right? So... Anyways, this is a good way to avoid litigation. It's just kind of curating things the right way, using the public record to our advantage. If it's okay, I'll jump in here too. And uh, because when, when the LLC came up in my world, where I was at the time, people got really scared. First of all, they did mistake it for corporation. They just, they, they sound out LLC in their mind and, and corporation is it. And it sounds like this, you know, kind of backdoor strategy, another maybe alt law kind of, you know, Wild West thing. But but what you said, Brendan, is that 60% of the businesses in the States are LLCs. So it's commonplace. And, uh, and, and one of the criticisms also that I know, Brandon, you've spoken to it, but it probably wouldn't hurt to say it again, that, you know, that, that, oh, like, cause the people in, in the private space will say, oh, you, you're selling out to the public. You're, you're using the public. You're, you know, you're not really private if you have an LLC. So what do you say to that, Brandon? Yeah. So I, I want to get into that because, um, you know, just because I'm using the LLC again, it doesn't make me the tool. Uh, actually, when you, when you create a, an LLC, you're actually creating a new U.S. person. Uh, and you can look up the law on this, but a person can be an individual. It can be a company. It can be a corporation. It can be a trust. Even an association can be a person. So I want to have that legal separation. And so all the stuff that where reliability could incur, I want that all to be under that other person that I set up away from me and using the LOC, I can incur or I can use it and uh, go into the world without being part of the world. And with the LOC that the LOC has the capacity to take on liability. Whereas in us as individuals, we don't. <laughs> so you want the LOC to be that person uh, doing all the commerce and all that. I myself personally, if I get paid doing anything or any type of work, I don't want that going to myself. I want that going to my other person, the LLC. And uh, if you don't mind, Chance, if I, I, I've got my role as the podcaster on, but, but just yeah. that, that, that there's the goal. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> that there's the goal of being 
totally private and you chance you said it, like if you don't want to do commerce, then yes, you can exist 100% like that. You might end up eating sticks and berries and living on the forest floor, which Anastasia likes, but it doesn't work for me. And, uh, you know, so just at that goal alone, like you're, you're always trying to get out of Babylon or remove yourself, extricate yourself. But Clint's teaching is like, no dudes, you don't, you actually don't have power over that because you did not create that situation in the first place. Exactly right. It's just like these people claiming that you can take control of your straw man and your burst of assets and all that. Well, maximum of loss is uh, the creator controls. Well, you certainly did not create those social security numbers. You did not create the birth certificate, right? So, but you can create an LLC and you now control it. Absolutely. Same with the trust. And a trust is even more private than LLC. That doesn't have to be registered anywhere. So, so we can get into that, how that looks. But yeah, I, I mean, these, um, these are being used by everyday people. And some of them don't even realize that, hey, the LLC is a separate U.S. person. They just did it because they're, uh, their business partner told them that, or they see someone else doing an LLC, but yeah, it's a great tool. And I think a lot of us should be utilizing it if for business people or not. Um, there's multiple ways you can LLC. It doesn't have to be just a brick and mortar business. Um, it's like and- instead of playing Monopoly with yourself on the board, <laughs> your actual <laughs> being, you can yeah. play with the little dog or the shoe. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I had someone recently, they, they're a member of mine. They use my system and they want to use their SSN as least as possible, which I am an advocate for. That's fantastic. You should be looking at that way. And so they got, they're looking to get a new apartment and uh, they're like, Hey, <laughs> they're asking for my personal information. Of course, what do I do? And I just tell them, well, look, I mean, I gave you your LLC. Just use that. So instead of putting in their name, when they ask you for your name and the tax ID number, we put in the LLC name, we put in the EIN for the LLC. And sure enough, the lease agreement was approved. And now they're under lease under an LLC, not their straw man. So that's just one simple example of, of just one way we can utilize LLCs. Now, I'm not saying just set up so an LLC. you can basically take your straw man out of the game almost entirely? Almost entirely, yeah. I'm at the point where like I... private. That sounds like actually being private. Your, your skin and bones are no yeah. longer on the line. Exactly. There is maximum privacy in business and trust law. So, um, you know, it, that's what I focus on. And like you said, it's, it's so that I can use my SSN as least as possible, which I think is really the whole point. So, yeah, so I want to make some more points about the LLCs. Uh, contrary to what a lot of the gurus online say in the alt law space, uh, which by the way, I should probably uh, copyright that. <laughs> but anyways, uh, so yeah, so now they say, well, an LLC, uh, it, it, it ultimately makes you a taxpayer, right? But an LLC does not have a tax liability. In fact, if you actually look into it, an LLC doesn't have to pay taxes. Only, only the individual connected to it can pay taxes for the LLC. Now, if you like, you have the option. You have a few different ways to use LLC for taxes. You can have the LLC file its own tax return, which I don't know why anyone would do that. Or you can choose to have it taxed as a corporation or S-corp, which in some cases where I have employees and there's no way I can 
have them be independent contractors and I have to have W-2 employees, then sure, maybe that's not a bad idea. But for most of us, especially if you have an online business, you don't need that. Um, so anyways, yeah, the LLC is not the taxpayer unless you make it so, right? It's all about your accounting practice. Remember that there's multiple ways to use the accounting practice. I mean, there's four or five different ways. So now another thing, I don't tell any county <laughs> that I have an LLC that the existence is already published. And so I don't have to make myself discoverable to the county. Uh, my LLC is not filed with the county. Remember, my LLC's address can be arranged. So I have mail privacy protocols that members of mine are privy to where I conduct the LLC's affairs and it's not even the same state that I reside in. <laughs> and that's what the wealthy do. I'm sorry, but they're never going to have it in New York or California, please. I mean, so there are some states where the LLC is more private than others? Yes, there is. Now, so, some people are thinking, oh, well, that's Wyoming, Delaware. and Maybe I'm thinking uh, of trusts. That's different than LLCs, right? It is different. Uh, trusts are always private. And uh, I mean, there's a couple states where they have some benefits of having your trust over there. But really, for the most part, they all fall under the Uniform Trust Act and code. So it's not really one's better than the other when it comes to trust, but certainly with LLCs, it is. Uh, so some people say, oh, Wyoming or Delaware or Nevada is the best state to set up the LLC. Only for certain situations would that be optimal. Most people, they don't, they don't need that. Um, but there are some other states that people just have no idea about using that are actually really good for LLCs. So anyways, w w where I arrange my business and publish it, it can be anywhere in the States and it's up to my discretion. It does not have to be where I live. And for me personally, I don't have to be a resident of wherever I am. So that's another aspect I demonstrate for people on what they can do when it comes to residency uh, and your residency, residency portfolio is called that for yourself and your holdings. So I like to compartmentalize every aspect of that. Um, so things are isolated and various risks are ahead. So if I'm living in Montana, well, I'm not going to have a Montana driver's license. So it's going to be a completely different state. <laughs> so it's stuff like that. And, you know, we can do all this. And, and of course, we're going to want to avoid states like California, New York, when we're setting up an LLC. And it's not about red or blue states either, right? Some people think it's about that. But remember, it's all about financial outcomes, not red or blue. And that, uh, you know, with, when you look at that way, you can benefit uh, from privacy more. So even if I live in California, New York, I can export my business to another state and we can even work on getting your new residency somewhere for yourself individually and still live in California while not being a California resident. <laughs> so we can even go further and work on disappearing yourself if needed, if maybe I'm escaping a uh, satanic uh, ritualistic abuse group, which I've had a couple clients where that was their case. So we had to make them disappear. Uh, that's kind of an unrelated topic. So we won't cover that, but yeah. So, okay. So a lot of these five weight gurus, they say, well, Hey, any business can be a five weight. Well, if I'm a plumber, I absolutely want to use an LLC, <laughs> right? There are bigger risks for tradesmen because I'm using the tradesman example. It's just easy to understand because you're working on other people's property, right? So you need to create indemnification off the bat and the LLC can give you that charging order protection. Uh, just think of that as a firewall. That's just a fancy word for, Hey, I can't be sued. Um, 
If I have an LLC and they sue me, however, individually, now they can get everything because sure, they can't sue a private association. They can't sue an LLC, but what they can do is just bypass that all and just sue me personally, right? Which often will happen. So I want to be able to have it so that, uh, you know, if they do sue me, um, you know, they, they couldn't get my ongoing plumbing revenue in the business. Um, and if I'm in the trades, I'm dealing with third parties like suppliers and oftentimes, you know, the suppliers, they'll give me uh, the supplies on what's called net terms, which is basically, hey, we'll give you 30 days to pay us back because we know that you, you know, your business, it relies on uh, time constraints, stuff like that. So a lot of people, not only in the trades, but business in general, they just use these net terms because it's convenient, right? It gets the job done, makes them more money. Uh, just like if I'm, if I have an oil shop, well, hey, I can order all my oil on net 30 terms. I got 30 days to pay my supplier. Meanwhile, I can get as much oil changes done as possible and I can make more money that way instead of just paying for it all up front. So that, that's another way you can actually start a business is using net, uh, net terms with very little money. But anyways, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you want to create your private person, the LLC, to use when interacting with the world, but not personally be of it. So leave the PMA by itself, let that be private, and don't intermix that with the world. So if I'm a PMA and I'm trying to do a plumbing service under the PMA, well, the suppliers, they're not going to know what the heck a PMA is, right? They're not going to work with that. No, they want to see an LLC or an individual. So that's what the LLC has the capacity for while not passing liability onto myself, whether we're dealing with suppliers or banks, any type of third party like that. I don't want to tell them anything about the PMA. So now let's get into trust. So trust, they're a tool that's used for estate planning and inside of estate planning that can get into building wealth, kind of like we we're talking about earlier at the beginning building a legacy, a dynasty for your bloodline. Uh, another aspect of trust, same with LLCs, is you get that asset protection aspect. And then another thing that you can use trust for is, is an alternative to 401ks, IRAs, or buying up uh, ridiculously high and expensive business insurance. So let's say I'm a hot dog stand in uh, Los Angeles. <laughs> well, if I get salmonella in my food batch, and that gets people sick. I mean, I can have all the business insurance at the end of the day, but if that's only going to cover so much, um, you know, it's really expensive. But with a trust, you know, instead of, spending, instead of spending thousands of dollars on business insurance, I could get a trust umbrella structuring uh, layout that gives me uh, the outcome of not being able to be collected from. Uh, right, even individually. So this can be a lot, and you'll see later how this all comes together. That will see the PMA and the trust, but when you have that all together, you don't have to buy up ridiculously high amounts of business insurance, right? That normally your attorneys would tell you to do. Your attorney will tell you, oh, you got to buy a million dollar business insurance policy, <laughs> right? Now, I will say, I recommend that depending on the business, sometimes it's still a good idea to have the business insurance uh, but just realize the business insurance is not going to cover uh, fatal occurrences. So if someone dies or something like that, that gets outside of the, the insurance coverage. So anyway, so yeah, there, 
Now, trusts, they're only used for estate planning and asset protection. No, you cannot access the secret all-cast all name trust, the SQV, and put your birth certificate or SSN in a trust that you drafted, right? Remember, maximum of law is creator controls. You did not create the birth certificate. You did not create the SSN, like Beth was talking about earlier. Uh, so I just want to say that because a lot of people, especially in the old law space, they finally have found out about trust, and now they're trying to use it as the remedy for everything. And I'm sorry, you cannot go to court and identify yourself as a trust. No, they're, they're going to see you as the straw man and the straw man only. I have plenty of case law on that. But anyways, that's a whole other conversation. But the beautiful thing about trusts are they're not registered or filed. They are completely private. And another thing is, in society, we've been brainwashed into thinking, well, trusts are only for rich people, right? Because we heard about movies talking about trust fund kids and stuff like that. But when it comes down to it, trusts are not just for wealthy people. It can be used by anyone. So with a business that I personally hold title to, uh, personal bank accounts, uh, financial accounts, uh, property, cars, you know, stuff, all sorts of that stuff that's attached to our names through titles, etc. cetera. Uh, any of that stuff that's listed with my name on that, on the title, that's what's going to be subject to not only litigation, but also probate court. So, well, what is probate court? If you guys don't already know, it's, so basically when you die, your assets uh, that are held in your name, your bank account, all that kind of stuff, it gets frozen. And then the state comes in and takes it over, and now they're in control. And then your family members or your heirs have to go through what's called probate court. And in a lot of places, uh, even Canada, probate, the whole process, it can last a really long time, up to a year or even two years. And if your heirs are suing each other because they weren't happy with the distribution, that can go longer than two years. I've seen cases go up to five years with probate. So now most people think, well, I don't need a trust. I can just use a will and that's sufficient, right? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but a will, it's gonna, it, can, it has room to be challenged by uh, the people that you put into will. So if you have kids, maybe one doesn't like the other. Or one thought that his, uh, he was entitled to more inheritance than the other. So Wills are always, or not, I shouldn't say always, but they're often challenged. I've seen it in my own family. It's horrible. Sometimes the family members sue each other. It's a whole mess. Not saying that's every case, but it's possible. And another thing too is with a will, they call it a will because yeah, it was your written will of how you wanted things to roll out after your death, how your property was going to be distributed to your heirs. But they call it a will because the judge can look at your will and just say, well, yeah, they meant to do this, but I think this would actually be better. So I'm going to change this and this out, right? So it's really up to the judge uh, if they want to implement what you willed or intended. Now, another problem with wills is they can be breached by creditors. Um, so if I had some outstanding debts in my life, I go to die. Now everything's in my will. It goes to probate court. My creditors are going to be right there in court. They're going to be like, hey, I'm entitled to that. He, This guy that died, he owed me you know, $100,000 because of X, Y, Z, right? So they can scrutinize your will and say, hey, I don't want his kid to inherit this guy's stuff. In fact, I'm entitled to that, so make me the heir. And a lot of times a judge will approve that if they have a valid case, the creditor. So another problem with the will 
it's going to automatically by default send your heirs a probate court in of itself. But a trust, it avoids all of this, what we went over legally and lawfully, uh, if you set it up before your death. So if I set up my trust before my death, I conveyed all my property items, even my personal bank accounts, stuff like that, which people don't think about, but that is subject to probate. If I put all of that into my trust, well, now I don't have to worry about probate or any of that stuff. None of my errors, it automatically just transfers. So it's a really seamless estate plan strategy. And a trust, you can think of it as a private association of sorts. It's going to exclude a lot more people than it includes, right? And, um, and to go back to the private association, it, that in of itself is a standalone person, but I also use the private association as a special purpose trust. So that's kind of where I'm different than most of these PMA gurus, besides all the other stuff that we covered. Um, so anyways, just wanted to cover kind of the quick basics of trust. Uh, no, it's not for rich people. Everyday people can use it. And if I could jump in here also, just when you're talking about when somebody dies and then if they don't have their property in a trust, then is it because of the birth certificate that they can freeze your assets because you cease to be a like a living account in their system? In in a way, yes, absolutely. Um, now, I'm not sure how you'd open, let's say, something like a bank account without an SSN or any of that kind of stuff. But for some, for some magical reason that you didn't, uh, well, if something happened to you and someone else tried to come in and access that account, they're not going to let you unless it's in trust. Uh, or if you have power of, uh, what do they call it, fiduciary power, something like that, where basically you have the power to make financial decisions for that other person. Power of attorney, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, you can think of it like that, yep. Okay. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, that's, that is one part of it, yeah. The whole uh, straw man thing. But really, let's just be honest, most of us have the SSM, most of us have the birth certificate. So, you know, I, I know talking about estate planning and all that can kind of seem dry and even kind of scary for people because it's kinda, it is facing your death in a way, right? But even at me at 27 years old, I still want to have my trust set up. Even though I don't have any kids right now, I can still have my trust written up so that any future heirs or even my niece or my nephew can still get my stuff at the end of the day. It won't have to go to probate and go where exactly where I want it to go. And then at any point, if I do have kids and all of that, then I can just change that out uh, to them as the beneficiaries. I was going to say you're a snowboarder, so you need, you need that trust. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I was firsthand with my mom's uh, death and she unfortunately didn't want to disclose anything. She didn't want to talk about her finances. She just had her will. And then it was uh, easily two and a half years going through absolute hell and rape, right? Like financial rape of my sisters and I to close off that account. It was, it was so stupid. It could have been so simple. And I know someone else firsthand now that had the trust in place and it was utterly seamless, the passing of the assets. Yeah, exactly. Both in the States and Canada, really any Western country. Uh, all this applies to all the Western countries, by the way. Um, I see someone in the chat asking, notary told us that a lawyer is always used with inheritance regardless of it in a trust or not. No, that is not the case. Absolutely not. 
with the trust, it excludes <laughs> unless the lawyer is involved with drafting the trust. And a lot of the times that the lawyer, if you go through a lawyer to get a trust, they'll have it so that they're the trustee. And we'll get into later what that means. But basically, the trustee is the person managing the property for the beneficiaries. And oftentimes, the lawyers will push for them to be the trustee for your family, which I don't think is a good idea. I think you should keep it in the family. Now, there might be certain cases where maybe I have a kid that's uh, disabled or something, and I don't have a spouse or I don't have someone I can trust. And then in that case, okay, sure, use an attorney. That's fine. But if I can avoid it, I will. And that's absolutely lawful and legal. All right, Dylan's so, comment here was great. He says, what I like about this convo is it's what people have been doing to get out of the crosshairs of the system rather than the terrible idea of fighting the system. <laughs> yeah, beautifully said, Dylan. I think um, that's what really inspired me to go down this road instead of uh, trying to reinvent the wheel or trying to go in and out of court. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't have time for that. I, I'm too busy and really I don't want to gamble. Um, I want to use what has been working for hundreds, in fact, thousands of years. When we're talking about trust, that's been around for a long, long time. That's not going anywhere. So, yeah, we, we have two different types of trust. We have re revocable. Some people call it revocable. I like to say revocable now. I think it's more proper. And irrevocable trust. And like I was saying, trust, they've been used for thousands of years. It goes all the way back to Egypt if you want to go back that far. Uh, but really, it got popular during the Knights Templars. Uh, trusts back then were always irrevocable or irrevocable is a more proper way to say it. So if people started to figure out uh, back in the 15th century what the king was doing, and they started to do it for themselves. So I, the trustor, the trustor is the person transferring property to someone else that I trust. And that would be the trustee, right? to maintain the property according to my desired outcome and for my beneficiaries. So go back to nice Templar example. They knew they were going to go on the crusade. So they had their old man neighbor be the trustee. Now I, the Templar was still the trustor. So I controlled how everything was going to be distributed and all that. I wrote it up, but I had the guy that I trusted be the trustee so that when I'm gone, there's still someone there maintaining my property for my kids or my beneficiaries. So once the trust is conveyed in an irrevocable trust, it is not able to be changed by an outsider. Now, I am no longer the owner. It is not my property. And I can legally say under penalty of perjury, no, anything in my trust is not mine. I do not own that. <laughs> so if I'm in a debtor's exam in court and they ask me, what do you own? Well, everything that I have in this trust, I don't have to... <laughs> I legally can, uh, under penalties of perjury, say, uh, exclude all that, right? But anything in my name, of course, sure, I'm going to have to divulge that in the debtor's exam. So, so anyways, they figured this out back in the 15th century. And really, if you go back even further, but I like to use a nice Templar's example. And um, what they did was they didn't become the owner anymore. They grouped their property rights. So in old England... If you committed a crime, the king would actually seize all of your property, right? But the peasants figured it out. Well, hey, if I put stuff into a trust, the property cannot be seized anymore if I do commit a crime or allegedly did, <laughs> since legally it is not my property anymore. And then, so the irrevocable trusts, really trusts in general, were like this 
for a long, long time until the 1930s, we then adopted the revocable trust, often referred to as the living trust or inter vivos trust. In Canada, they like to call it the inter vivos. And um, now this is a little different. This can be changed during the trustor's and trustee's life. And you, you can be the trustee and the trustor at the same time and also the beneficiary. I'm not saying that's the best idea, but it is possible with a living trust. Um, and this is what most people have today is a living trust because let's be honest, uh, people in the trade, they know that for lawyers, it's a lot easier to draft up a revocable trust and a lot less time intensive than a, a irrevocable trust. So they'll just pitch you the living trust, um, which most people could use. I think that's fine, but I kind of want to get into the caveats on why one's better than the other, how you can use both. So let's get into how these two types of trust can be used along with our other structures like the LLC and the PMA. This is, I'm glad for everybody that's here because this is valuable. This information, the lack of this information amongst people is what has led to the massive wealth funneling from those who know it away from the masses. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this the the lack of this knowledge is how we've gotten to such a huge divide between the wealthiest and the the commoners, if you will. Oh, exactly. Um even in law school, you're not gonna learn all this. Yeah, I mean you'll learn the very basics of what I went over, but when it comes to these next strategies that I'll show you and the way that I structure it. I don't care if you have if you have an MBA, if you have a law degree or account degree, they don't teach you any of this stuff. These are trade secrets that only the rich know about. Uh, but you know, my whole point is to get it so that everyday people like ourselves can start using it. And uh, you know, like you said, we can start. Uh, it's less esoteric, not for the rich only. We can start using it ourselves, right? So this is a very basic setup. Right. And if someone's on a low budget, this is what I'll give them and it'll be sufficient. And this is ideally going to be for someone on a low budget. And also they haven't done anything. They, they have everything in their name right now. Maybe they work a job um, and they're wanting to start a business slash estate plan. So, of course, this is you on the left. Now, I drew this arrow because everything on the right is private and it's away from you legally. It's a legal separation. So my business LLC, and I myself don't have to be the member owner of that LLC. My family PMA trust can be. <laughs> so this is a very basic setup, but it would be enough for someone just starting out. Um, now, eventually, you know, when I work with people, if you're getting just this setup, I'm still going to cover, okay, I'm giving you the setup, but realize Let's work out a roadmap of where eventually you're going to want to allocate things and how down the road after you accumulate some wealth. Uh, we're not going to keep it this way. We're going to want to expand on it. So that's what the next slides we'll get into. So this is the second uh, strategy slash setup roadmap. Let's call it the roadmap um, that I implement for people and show people how to use. Um, this is kind of more if you have another thousand dollars to spend, right? Which, by the way, if you went to a lawyer for all this, you're talking over 10K for all this, what I'm showing you. Um, so now this is you, of course, um, over here. You can have your family under you as well. And uh, 
Now we're going to have the living trust um, over here on the left because that will pertain to you personally, which is not a, not a problem. So my personal bank account, my car, my primary residence. Now there's some asset protection lawyers that will say, well, put that all into an LLC, the car and the primary residence. Well, I'm sorry. That's just, there's a better way to do it. <laughs> and we'll cover all of that, what that looks like. But uh, essentially what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all those things on the left diagram into my living, living trust, right? Now I can do what's called equity stripping. So if I don't have equity in my car or my, my primary residence, I don't own it. And what does equity stripping mean? Well, it is exactly how it sounds. I'm stripping my equity, my personal equity, and transferring my equity into this holding company over here on the right uh, side of the diagram. So I can lease my car and my house to my company that I set up, right? And that way I don't technically own it personally, but I can still use it. So we have the business over here on the right side of the diagram. And below that, I could have my raw milk PMA. I just use that as an example. Um, I can still have that be its own thing, the PMA. And I can use the LOC as the payment processing company for the sales of the raw milk, let's say. Um, so that's one use if we're intermixing the PMA with the LOC. Now at the top, though, again, I'm not going to be attached to this LOC on the right side of the diagram. <laughs> Remember, everything on the right side of this diagram is private. It's away from me personally. So I have my irrevocable trust uh, above the, my LOC. Now, the trustee of this irrevocable trust, well, first let me get into the living trust on the left side. So the living trust, I can be the benefit or the trustee of, and then my wife, my kids can be the beneficiaries of. And that's a clean way to do it. That's fine. Now, you, with a living trust, like I was saying earlier, you can be all three. You can be the trustee, the beneficiary, and the trustor. Not saying this is the best idea, but as long as there isn't any controversy, you get away with that. But if I was ever sued for something, they could challenge that relationship. So you do want some layer of separation, even with the living trust. But with the irrevocable trust, you really want to focus on separation, even more so than living trust. Because in the living trust, you can be the grantor and the trustee. But in the irrevocable, you cannot be all three. So ideally, the trustee is going to be someone else. And of course, ideally, that's going to be someone that you trust, right? So maybe that's my close friend or my brother, my sister, something along those lines. Most people, they can even use a lawyer for that role to be the trustee. Personally, I'm not a fan of that idea. I don't like that. I, I want to keep it in the side of the family or someone that I trust, right? Do not trust attorneys. <laughs> so... Now, in some states, though, they have certain laws around trust where I can be the trustee and the grantor in the irrevocable trust. Um, so there are some states, there's only a few that that's applied to, and that's fine if, if you're in one of those states. But for most of us, you're going to want to have the trustee be someone else. And let's say you don't have someone else. Well, there's some fun things you can do. You can use other persons to be that trustee. But anyways, that's a whole nother conversation. Kind of more advanced estate planning that we won't really get into now. But um, and then my beneficiaries. Now, here's what's interesting about the irrevocable trust. If I'm not the trustee, well, I can still be the beneficiary. I can be the grantor and the beneficiary. I just can't be the grantor, trustee, and the beneficiary at the same time, right? So, but 
I can have myself, my kids, my wife, my future generations as the beneficiaries in this irrevocable trust at the very top of this entire structuring, right? Is this now I use the triangles because in law school, they in, in diagrams that they draw, they have the triangles be the trust. So kind of a fun little uh, side note. But uh, yeah, so now why would I want to be the beneficiary of my irrevocable trust? Well, uh, you want to have yourself as a beneficiary in the irrevocable trust because then I can still benefit from the things that are inside of the irrevocable trust, right? So now another thing that you can do is let's say my business makes uh, $500,000 in revenue and I go to pay myself personally, let's say $500,000. Well, instead of transferring that $300,000 from the 500K revenue from my business, instead of transferring that 300K to my personal account, which most people do, and then they just pay their personal tax, uh, they put on their 1040 tax report at the end of the year. I can instead place that 300K that I was going to use to pay myself, and I can transfer it to my irrevocable trust. And if my house is in my irrevocable trust, that kind of stuff, or, or, or let's, a better way to say it is if my house is owned by the company that is controlled by my irrevocable trust, I can use the trust money to pay for, let's say, expenses associated with whatever is inside of my trust. So if that's a house, I can use that to pay for renovations, maintenance, lawn maintenance, that kind of stuff, using the trust money. So there's a lot of ways you can use this system, uh, this whole diagram in and of itself, but this is the basic overview. So you're basically able to pay for things you need in that sense without them ever becoming, without the money involved ever becoming income. Exactly. And then um, in a lot of cases, uh, if you do make distribution to one of your beneficiaries in the irrevocable trust, as long as the money is held in the trust, that's not going to be taxed. And uh, now there are some cases where your beneficiary, if they do receive distribution, then they'll just pay that on their own individual tax return. But if I use the trust money to pay and I keep the money in the trust, and I use that to pay for the expenses and don't do distribution, that isn't taxable. Hey, oh. This is esoteric as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the Rockefeller system right here. These are the, this is the real clipothic shells of the Kabbalah. <laughs> it is. And there's only three top estate planning attorneys in the entire country that use this exact diagram. Can I jump in with a question? Yeah, absolutely. So when you restructure as, you know, the irrevocable trust, the business LLC, maybe the living trust on the other side, depending on, on what's appropriate, yeah. how does your government perceive you then when you, when you make that restructure? So, so, you know, say as a Canadian citizen, I have dutifully like a, a good slave paid my taxes every year mm -hmm. and filed all of that. So how, how does that shift when you, when you uh, restructure? Yeah, they can see all of what you're doing. In fact, when I set everything up, I just keep in mind that they are seeing everything and doing. So I'm not trying to hide anything from them. Mm -hmm. So you just have your records uh, reflect this. You can have your tax records reflect all of this if you want. Uh, when it comes to IRS, you don't really want to hide these things from them. In fact, you can use it for your benefit using the tax code. So that would be my answer um, to that. And as we open bank accounts for trust, you're going to get the EIN for that anyway. So the IRS will already know about it. So there's really no point in trying to hide uh, 
everything about the trust from them. It's just uh, you can use the law to your advantage. And so the government, let's say you're using the system, right? This exact diagram. Well, they're just going to see that you're a smart person and you're doing exactly what they do. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. So it's yeah. not it's not a flag because you're restructuring. Yeah. And you have to do you all these things. invited to like a country club. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, your country club is going to love you if they uh, learn what you're doing. Because I'm telling you, you go to your local asset protection attorney or estate plan attorney. They don't know about this diagram. They just tell you to open up an LLC. Oh, for every asset, have its own LLC, right? So I got to have 10 different LLCs. Well, that's not tax efficient. That's not efficient for my state plan. All this stuff. So now you do have to do all these things legitimately. You have to dress a legitimate trust. You have to do a legitimate lease between your car and the business. There's a lot of caveats associated with that. You got to have a real lease and interest rate, all that kind of stuff that's realistic. You know, if I have an interest rate at 0.01%, that's not going to be a valid lease agreement and according to their eyes, right? The government. So there are particular ways on how you have to structure this, but yeah, when you do it right, um, this is the cleanest setup to have. Now this is for the more advanced uh, clients or members, I should say of mine. Um, so this is for someone that has a bigger portfolio. Um, someone that's already established in the business world or investments. So kind of similar to the last one where, you know, you're down here, your family, you got your living trust, you got personal bank account, your cars, let's say primary residence, all associated over here on the left. Um, and then I got my business over here. Let's say that's a brick and mortar. And then my PMA up here. Uh, but this brick and mortar business or even my online business, you think of it like that as well, either or whatever business type it is. This ultimately is going to be controlled by a holding company. So you got two companies actually. So this company holds ownership of this company, and this company hold, is held, this ownership is held in this irrevocable trust at the top. But this holding company I can use as my piggy bank. And down here, I can have rental properties. Now, ideally, I forgot to put this in the diagram, but ideally, you're going to want to have two other LOCs in between the rental properties in between your holding company. <laughs> so that's another way to structure it. But yeah, I can have as many rental properties as I want on the right side of this holding company. And uh, no, I don't have to have six different holding companies. I can just have one for everything. And that's a really clean, efficient way to do it. And I can have all my leases go to this, all that good stuff. And is it just the, the picture graphic or is there no distinction between the private and the public here or the private and you, pardon me? Yeah. So I, I forgot to draw a line in this diagram. Okay. Uh, but yeah. So let's see from, so you see the living trust and the private residence, you see that general lower area. Mm -hmm. That's all going to be, um, it's still going to be private because a living trust is private. Um, so technically this whole chart is private, but the more private side of the private is on the right side with the holding company and the irrevocable trust and all that. Okay. And it's, and it's private from you, foreign from you, correct? Yes. It is a separate owner. A irrevocable trust is legally a separate owner. Right. And that's assuming just to spell it out. You is the birth certificate account, not your yeah. living 
breathing flesh and blood bones. Exactly. It's good to remember that, yes, we are not the straw man. We're not even these entities or structures. But with the world we're in right now, we can't be denial, right? There is a system in place. And so in order to blend in, because I don't want to stick out again, that's my whole operating system. I don't want to go to court and all that. We just have to use the system right now, right? So that's fine because the system has given us these tools and we can get what we want. We just didn't know how. Very good. Thanks. So with all this presented, I showed you three different ways to configure your allocations, right? But remember, there is no hard rule book or one plan that works for everyone. Everything is situational, right? You know, one diagram might work for one guy, one might not work for the other. So that's why I don't give people templates <laughs> like all of these gurus online do. They just give you this blanket term template. And it's just it's a one size fit all for everyone. But I'm sorry, that's not going to cut it. And I'm definitely not going to give everyone the same exact setup, right? So again, it's really important to for me to get a handle of an individual's particular situation and their goals. Because uh, those two things are going to look differently for everyone. So we got to set up different roadmaps for each individual person and their family rather than just one blanket term solution like these gurus online try to push. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that's the end of that presentation, but uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, you know, paying attention to all this. I know it was a lot of material to cover, but you know um, you know, you guys could take screenshots and go back if you want, but you know, I got it my might not be as entertaining as uh, <laughs> Patriot mythology conspiracy. Hold on, I'll bring that back up. I want people to be yeah. able to see. Oh, thank you. But you know, <laughs> you have a lot more time to entertain yourself when you're wealthy and uh, <laughs> more private. So it's, it's yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. Look, you want to go down those rabbit holes? You want to buy all the gold and silver you want? Well, first get wealthy, then you can do all those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been. Very eye-opening for me. It's made sense of stuff that is fuzzy and murky for, you know, your standard high school education or even, I mean, I have a bachelor's degree. Not a word of this is ever taught to you in any kind of public schooling, <laughs> not even a little bit. Oh, not at all. I've had clients that are MBAs and uh, I've even worked with a couple of lawyers in the years past that were specialized in asset protection and uh, what's the other one, estate planning. And uh, yeah, I, I, they basically use me as their right-hand man and uh, kind of as a different set of eyes, let's say, than the, what they're trained in. And yeah, they didn't learn any of this stuff. You know, I myself, I went to business school and I mean, you didn't learn anything about even just the very basics. So, yeah. So James from Family Fungi, he had a question earlier about if you have any knowledge of, on unincorporated business trust. Yeah, so that's a scam. Okay. Um, now there are such things as a business trust, but it should only, a business trust should only be used to hold title and control over an already existing company. If I'm trying to do business with a un unincorporated business trust, um, that's, if I'm trying to do commerce with a trust, that's going to raise instant red flags, right? I cannot just set up a PayPal or Stripe account under a trust and have my clients pay me through there. They would literally have to write me a check, <laughs> right? So it's not only going to raise flat red flags, but 
it's also going to make things way more complicated than it needs to. And also, a trust doesn't have the capacity to take on the things like the limited liability company does, right? Remember, the LLC is designed to take on the public. The trust is not. Okay. <laughs> uh, that, that makes sense to my limited knowledge, but I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the, especially at the end when we can kind of see it visually laid out, you know, this conversation above other law oriented conversations gave me what felt like a roadmap, but that I could go into more deeply to improve my standing and, you know, my future family and future children's ability to continue to enjoy the benefits of the work that I've put in, the benefits I've inherited from having my parents who did work really hard, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe just not have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps anymore in the future and just start already at a elevated position. And there's so much, you know, the world is full of more than enough for everybody. But whenever we are playing in the uneven field of the knowledge differential that has been wielded against the general people for so long, then it makes this musical chairs game and the weaponized debt note system all the more insidious when in fact, you know, even the fact that the economy is operating on, on debt as the currency, you can still work with that. Like the beauty of, and maybe the simplest truth of life is that because (laughs) there's no way to be separate from nature. We never left nature. You can't leave reality. You can't leave nature. You can't leave God's jurisdiction. You can't lose your God-given rights. They are inherent. And so part of that is there's always going to be enough for all the organisms on the world to thrive, not just survive, but thrive. It's built in. That's the nature of capital, our reality. This is the, this is the garden of Eden. We're already in paradise and it's the ways we fooled ourselves and the weaponized, uh, like obscuring of truth or the way truth is spun by certain individuals. And I don't even want I don't even like how I'm saying that because it's like they're doing it to us. But, you know, it's the the game of burying your head in the sand and pursuing comfort and entertainment generationally over and over, you know, and the trauma that it causes us to disassociate is a big part of that. And working through that is another part of the equation, defragmenting our psyche. <laughs> and so we have everything we need. There's no reason why we shouldn't like all be wealthy. It's not like we'll be wealthy and they won't. It's we could all do it. There's this is not a zero sum game is what I'm trying to say. Beautifully said. And that's really what I want our society to get to is we're implementing all of these things ourselves. Right. It's not just for the top 10 or 1%. Um, and I don't blame those guys. I mean, look, it, they put in the work. And like you're touching on earlier, like we work so hard in our lives. If we don't protect what we've built or accumulated over time, then what was that all for if we didn't protect it? Right. So that's what really got me down this whole asset protection rabbit hole over the years. And, uh, you know, luckily I was fortunate enough to start down the entrepreneurial road when I was really young. So after a certain point for me, it was like, okay, I know 
I now have the skill sets and the knowledge base to just accumulate revenue of all sorts of different kinds throughout my lifetime. But I didn't have that necessary other key element of the protection and asset uh, estate planning portion. So, yeah, it's um, I like what you said that, you know, we all should be wealthy. And that's absolutely true. And uh, especially in today's economy, I know a lot of people like to bitch and moan about it, but it's never been easier to make money and build wealth. It's, it's, it's mind-blowingly easy if you know what you're doing, um, especially with the markets nowadays. But yeah, it's, it, we should be using it as much as we can. Yes, there is some truth that, yeah, money is debt, but don't let that be the end-all, be-all. In fact, uh, learn how to use it. Don't be a victim of it. And uh, you, know, you said that working through all this stuff mentally is a huge part of it. I think that's the biggest part is get, getting over those mental blocks first so then you can accept I don't like a anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you get over those mental blocks first, like let's just use one random one for example. Oh, trusts are only for rich people. <laughs> well, if you never get over that hump, then well, it's it's uh, not going to leave your family in an ideal situation. But one thing I forgot to cover about probate court is in probate court, Typically, they're going to take about 30% of the estate's value in just court costs and taxes. And on top of that, you're going to have to pay attorney fees. Uh, there's referee. This is what they call a probate referee. So another type of attorney comes in. And there's a lot of um, ways they sink their teeth into your estate if you have a will. And if you don't have a will, then they'll just write up one for you, <laughs> the court. And then they'll still take all your stuff, uh, or at least a big part of it. And then eventually give it to your family or heirs. So, yeah, that's that's another important thing I forgot to cover. Yeah, I was just going to chime in with my favorite subject. I like the word you used, Chance, uh, defragmenting, because that's exactly what deprogramming is to me. We've got these competing parts of ourself sometimes directly opposed, or at least the inner experience is as if there's this opposition. Opposition, and so we've got the reality of God's abundant earth. And then we've got the fiction of the, of the debt and the lack. And to the degree that you're not able to examine the inner workings and see, you know, what's, what's real, what it's the same inside yourself when you observe and you see what's real. Oh, that programming is actually AI. It isn't even alive without me. It has no existence of its own. Why am I taking instructions from this thing? And then you start to be able to see more clearly as the layers come off and you can follow the truth more easily without a big attachment. You know, again, just to, to highlight that people were against the good news. They didn't want to hear it because of the attachment, because of the fear programming that they started, you know, it's like sugar or wheat or something that it becomes an addiction, even though it's hurting you. And uh, yeah, so that's, I'm, I'm always on that soapbox to, to get control of your inner life so that you can make moves that are simple and true. <laughs> the, yeah. the currency of victimhood is way more debt-based than Federal Reserve notes. <laughs> I go. love that. Yeah. 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 It's so true because, um, yeah, especially when it comes to the finance stuff, uh, you know, Clint or Beth and I did a couple of shows on the financial collapse psyop. And the more data that I presented to people, the more they wanted to bury themselves in the narratives that, you know, everything's going to collapse still. Um, so, you know, it's, 
it's not a healthy way to live like that. And uh, really, what's, what good is it going to be for me to just hold on to gold and silver, which if you do the math, it doesn't keep up with inflation and all that. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it's really hard for me to see people thinking that way, although I have been there years before. Right. Well, it has like, the advantage of in uh, like a bank catching on fire, all the computers breaking, et cetera, et cetera. Gold will be gold in a thousand years. That's the <laughs> advantage, but not the value in the market that that's not a guarantee. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thanks to Clint's work. And if you read into it, the statutory price of gold in America is around $40 an ounce, contrary to right now, $1,950 an ounce. So by law in the United States is actually set at $40 hasn't changed and they won't change it anytime soon. So just be wary of that. I mean, the mark, everyone says gold and silver is highly uh, manipulated down. It's stifled the price when actually it's manipulated up. <laughs> so everything is the opposite of what they think it is and what we're being taught in the alternative space. And it's really hard for me to just sit back and see all these narratives and seeing how it affects these people's lives negatively. And some of my friends personally, um, or members of mine and, and so we kind of work some through some things and then, uh, you know, I love it when they can push past the narratives and just, you know, don't take my word for it. Look at all the data yourself and see how these things actually correlate to your life. So we had a question earlier about paying oneself out of the LLC or out of a trust. Is there anything you could share about how that works? This uh, Pandora's teacup. I like that name. <laughs> she says, you know, wanted to know how, how exactly does one pay themselves? Would that just be like paying an employee essentially? And you're the employee. No, most accountants and lawyers will tell you to do that. Be your own employee, which is a horrible idea. They don't do that because you're going to get double taxation. <laughs> you're oh, gonna get, okay. uh, that's good to know. Yeah. Not only are you going to get income tax, but you're going to get self-employment tax, right? So you definitely want to avoid being your own employee of your company. What I can instead do is call what's a, a member's draw, which basically just means, hey, I can transfer the money out via cash. But let's say I only need 60K to live on comfortably. And I want to you know, invest and save up the rest. So if I'm just paying myself $60,000 from the business and I transfer that to my personal checking account, well, I don't have to report the whole 300K from my business, even though it generated that. All I have to report on my 1040 at the end of the year is that $60,000 as miscellaneous income. <laughs> so, no, you don't have to pay yourself an employee. In fact, don't do that. Um, not a good idea if you're a business owner. So um, now there's, that's one way to do it. Now, another way is I can keep the money in the LLC and just use that to pay for my expenses. Some people do that too. Some people aren't comfortable with that though. Um, you know, so either way is fine. Um, I personally, I make my life a business. So all my expenses are business expenses. Now there are some things if you're using the write-off strategy, which I personally don't use, but if you're using the write-off strategy and you try to use everything as a business expense as a write-off, that's not going to work. Only actual business expenses will be appropriate for a write-off when it comes to that type of strategy. So 
But again, me personally, I don't use the write-off strategy. I'd rather just defer the taxes. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> you know, you say you make your life the business expenses. And, uh, you know, that really goes against the whole spiritual mythos regarding the public and the private. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Yeah. But okay. life is a form, like in the truest sense of the word commerce outside of like the c- commercial system, commercial codes and all that legal framework. Commerce is the interchange of energy between yeah. life forms. And yeah, all life is a form of commerce. All life is that type of exchange. So uh, the the mythos kind of muddles things in some ways whenever whenever you try to look at it in the way that you're presenting. Oh, Actually, exactly. a lot of ways. It's completely opposite of everything that I say, and they think I'm like a complete idiot or something. I get a lot of nasty comments. But, uh, you know, I, at the end of the day, they're just in their normalcy bias, and that's fine. They can live in that world. That's fine. I like to live in reality. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you can either choose to do commerce in your straw man, or you can choose to do it in a straw man that you created. Which is which is it going to be? I was going to jump in and say that um, they basically capitalize on our vulnerability to division, whether that's you know between people within ourselves. And then one of the deep dive studies that I've been doing for the last three years is on how the public and the private, as archetypes, are actually identical to the masculine and the feminine, which is identical to the left brain and the right brain, and and show me one circumstance where you like a person walking around with a left brain and no right brain. It's the same in nature, the predators and the praise. You can't have one or the other. You can't take predators out of the environment and have it be a healthy ecosystem. And it's the same with the public and the private. So we're, we're under this illusion that they are two separate entities and they are not, they exist. They don't, one couldn't exist without the other. And so what, when we're railing against the public, we are actually, it's a kind of uh, spiritual suicide, killing, killing part of our self. The whole wow. Thing. You couldn't say that more beautifully. That nails it. It's so, so good. And, you know, back to the concept of fragmentation, we just did a show with Dr. Thomas Zinser, who was a career hypnotherapist and had really incredible results helping people find the fragmented alternate selves they had in their psyche from where trauma caused a split and maybe their four-year-old self still existed somewhere in their psychic realm and had some kind of influence when the right conditions would trigger it. And, you know, it's an energy drain because to compartmentalize part of your psyche, that's your life force that is now in a bubble over here in a stagnant type of vibration, for lack of a better term. And you know, one of my, uh, one of my good friends who listens, he, I call, I got on the phone with him last night and he told me this whole story about how listening to that episode, it, it triggered something for him and some kind of integration occurred. He had this crazy dream where the like primordial God and goddess yin and yang were fighting, knock down, drag out, and then like stopped fighting. I'm probably butchering the story. I want him to call in and tell the whole story. But essentially, it, whenever he woke up from that, he had... Uh, almost like a wound in his thigh, almost as if he had actually like, as if he had been hit by something, you know, it was, it wasn't there before nothing happened to it. He woke up. And so this is where like the, the schism psychic energy had been living in his body 
probably in the form of some kind of unconscious tension. When it releases and consciousness can now return to that spot, it's like, whoa, that hurts. It's been hurting the whole time. And it was related to an injury he had received in rugby. And he's an older dude. I think he's probably at least 60. And uh, after a few days when that healed and the lifelong, like where the, the decade long stinger that he had in that spot went away, he went and played rugby with the 20 year olds and was outrunning them, was outperforming. And so this is what I mean when like we do this alchemical marriage, whether it's with the public or the private or our inner masculine and feminine left and right brain, we stop playing the red versus blue, Coke versus Pepsi, Republican, Democrat, schisming thing. The energy reservoir that is unleashed by bringing these forces together rather than keeping them in combat, it's, you can't even calculate it. You know, (laughs) old man playing rugby with 20 year olds is what happens. It's, It's amazing. There you go. You said the word bubble before about putting part of yourself in a bubble. And it's a good metaphor because when you try to hold a bubble down, like if has anyone tried to hold the inner tube under the water, well, it's going to create a lot of pressure. So you have to exert. It takes a lot of energy. <laughs> exactly. All your life energy gets invested in holding those parts separate and down away from your awareness. So as soon as you stop doing that, you're you're as if flooded with life energy. It was all always already there. It was an illusion that it was missing, but because it's so incredibly divested or invested in the division, then it's like you're a dying person draining the life right out of you. <laughs> yeah. It's uh look up the definition of like the old definitions of for and against, and it's the same, they mean the same thing. I just heard that. You're holding up the two sides of a, a wall of division, exactly like you said. And so in the in the financial element of this conversation today, in this commercial, public and private alchemical marriage that Brandon is teaching us about, the energy that is freed up by getting these two sides to play nice and and integrate properly rather than be always at odds, that that energy releases in the form of wealth, currency, you know, currency and current are similar words for a reason. This is just another aspect and manifestation of our life force and the way that our, we feel strained in our ability with currency is 100% a function of how well our personal life force energy in our body vessel is flowing and integrated. There's tons of people that I've tuned where, especially working in the second chakra, doing biofield tuning, the sacral chakra, and helping them digest compartmentalized uh, old feelings of frustration or guilt or things in that center, where after the tuning, they, <laughs> they send me an email and they say, somebody just paid me back a bunch of money they owed me and I forgot about it. It had been 10 years. You know, there's like a real life correlation in the external world to how well our energy centers are flowing and balanced. And that includes the income aspect. You got it. Yeah. No, I always say, or these days I've been saying I should be, because that's one of my criticisms uh, that's leveled at me right now, not my criticism, but one that's leveled at me is that I'm following Brandon because I want to make so much, I want to make gobs of money. And in the reality is I, I should, I, maybe I should be more focused on money. I'm, I'm not focused on money. I'm actually focused on my purpose and my service. And, uh, but I'm also not naive. And I, you know, as a, as a background in business and as a business coach, 
then I know how to walk so I don't commit suicide to myself to be that helper that falls down and is poor on the road and needs uh, to beg for a living. And, and the whole thing, you know, even though I'm not that focused on money, it still is like the abundance is every time I go to my account, it's more than I expected because there is that kind of uh, relationship going on now, not so much energy lost to all of that division. So yeah, it's, um, it may, it'd be amazing if I focused on it. I don't know if I ever will, but uh, just to dispel that myth, that's not why I love Brandon. <laughs> well, the most you need is to just know there's always enough. And your health is your wealth and you don't have to worry about money, but that doesn't mean you couldn't be smart about it because there are booby traps in the commerce system that we've got. And that's especially in the realm of wills and inheritance. And at the end of the day, that's what this is about. It's about making sure that even if people in your family, people, your direct descendants, your significant other, your sister or brother, Maybe they haven't figured out their health is wealth properly, you know, in a way where they're just in this constant manifestation flow of their inner life force (laughs) coming back to them in the form of wealth from the external. But that doesn't mean that all that you've done should just evaporate to the state whenever you're gone. (laughs) <laughs> you know, maybe if they could inherit properly, that would give them the legs to stand on to figure out their health a little better, too. But, you know, it's yeah. at the end of the day, we just don't want to go into the mafia. And that's yeah. uh, that's all there is to it. Yeah, that reminds me. Um, I remember when I was uh, a young child, my grandma told me a story about I believe this was in the 1960s, somewhere around there when McDonald's was starting the first launch off. And one of their first locations was in the Midwest. And um, she had someone approach her with the opportunity to buy stock in the McDonald's uh, way back. And she saw it as a big risk. Uh, she's like, oh, that's too risky. But she told me, and this is way back in the early 2000s, <laughs> if she would have just bought that one share back then, she could have uh, she could have been a multimillionaire by now. So, you know, it's um, a lot of these opportunities and I'm not saying stocks are only opportunities. I mean, I think there's more opportunities in business that can funnel into your investments. But anyways, there's a lot of opportunities that we negate ourselves from just based on our preconceived disposition uh, when it's not actually valid. And I like that you said that money is energy. Um, You know, money, there's a lot of people in the doomsday or financial space. They say that, you know, There's a shortage of dollars, dollars disappear, wealth disappears. But no, uh, dollars don't disappear. Uh, Money, if you see it as the form of energy, then of course energy is just transferred, right? It doesn't disappear. So whether you go back to the 2008 crisis or the 2020 scandemic crash, I myself, especially in the 2020 crash, I monetized on that because I saw that coming. Um, even if you didn't see that coming and you had a long short portfolio, which I t- teach people to have, you couldn't monetize that as well without having to do anything. So, um, you know, money doesn't get lost. It just gets transferred. So just learn how to be on that right side of it. And then you won't have to worry as much about money and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just posting about that exact thing that, uh, you know, when I thought the world was actually going to end, cause I was, I bought all the propaganda and and I was on the edge. I was going like, okay, lay down and die or 
there must be some other else. I'm thinking to myself, there must be something else, but I really feel like laying down and dying. And I put my hands up to God and I prayed. I said, what could I create right now that would help me move forward? That would be a value to my people in this situation. And next thing you know, do you mind if I spam your people about something coming up? Chance? Please. Yeah, this is a great time to. I would have asked you to. Okay, very good. Yeah, yeah. So that that's when I created the Journey Code Coaching Certification. And that's something that I did not think I was going to pass on my knowledge for a lot of years. I felt you know, like, oh, little me, who am I to do that? But God's going like, Beth, it's time. And I'm like, okay. And so I created a seven month behemoth, you know, 28 mod or actually 24 plus four module process for people to go through and impart the knowledge that I have picked up for the last 15, 20 years in doing my own coaching. And it, frankly, it was a beautiful obsession compared to the fear of running from the famine and the controllers and you name it, what they were trying to do to us, then I was full-time in creating for people. It's a totally different energy. It's a suffering of its own kind, but I would rather bleed on the page any day compared to running in fear. And, uh, and I'm about to run my fifth training in these last, since 2020 now. So that's going to start in September. Thank you. And it's been fantastic. The experiment. I love being able to impart because otherwise you just do, you know, we just do what we do. And this is one of my messages when I, when I do business coaching is that you don't unpack what you do and make it usable for others in steps. Like if you're just a brilliant uh, sound therapist, for example, chance, and you just do your magic and then you die with your magic, then if you could have unpacked it, trying to make you feel bad. If you could have unpacked it <laughs> and made it a process that other people could walk into because you decoded the whole thing, then that's another way to leave a legacy, right? People perish for lack of knowledge. Yeah, I, I want to do that. The uh, I, I just, I'm not sure there's one little sticking point, which is like, I have this weird biological superpower of how I find the stuck energy that my ears pop and like, I feel this pressure change in my head. And like, I don't know anybody else that does tuning that has that happen. So I think there would have to be like this fuzzy part in the training, like, and then practice until you figure out how it works for you. <laughs> but I think that's, you know, that's an important part of the hero's journey is going into the dark cave and coming out with like, okay, this is my way of doing it. Cause even if somebody gives you the cookie cutter step-by-step, -step, here's the process the, there's always going to be an element of how you do it. Just like Brandon, he's not able to just prop, pop out a template and like everybody follow this template. It doesn't work that way. But yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm super happy that, <laughs> you know, there's people in our, in our audience right now that have taken your courses and benefited from you bleeding on the page as you put it. <laughs> and that's something that's on, you know, on the agenda for me. Uh, I've got a lot of time left though. So I'll refine more before I share my process. Although I would rather lots of people knew how to tune other people than them coming to me. That would be way better overall than it'll have it to come through me or the few people who do it. But yeah, let's, uh, let's wrap it up guys. We <laughs> we're pretty long in the tooth. This has been awesome, Brandon. I hope we can collaborate again. Um, very intrigued in maybe working with you directly for myself, uh, maybe bringing my parents to you. <laughs> you know, there's like, I see a lot of, uh, a lot of value in the information that you share. And I appreciate the gift that you gave us of the presentation and laying it all out, putting all the cards on the table as you did. 
Yeah, I like to be, um, you know, especially when it comes to my process, I, I like to be transparent about it. I don't want there to be any surprises. So that's why I like to lay it out all out um, for you guys with the diagrams, the boxes, the arrows, the triangles, <laughs> all that good stuff. Because I myself, I'm a visual person. So if someone's just explaining all this structure, and I'm not going to understand it, right? Uh, but the visual helps a lot. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. And yeah, we could definitely collab. Um, it's funny you told that or you said that about your parents. I've, uh, I've had that happen before where actually the parents recommended me to their kids. So, uh, or, or the other way around. So it's, it's fun. It can be a family thing. And I think that's the best way to do it when the, the family comes together and, uh, puts together a plan that's ideal for everyone. Well, my family would trust you right out the gate because my sister just had a baby and they named him Sterling. So, <laughs> you know, it's the first grandchild of my parents. So, so I'd be like, Hey, I know this guy, you know, Sterling is his name. And, uh, he's got a really good way to help us protect our familial wealth. So <laughs> I'll talk. Yeah. To him. Yeah. And, uh, I will say another thing I forgot to touch on before we go, um, I showed you all the structuring. Uh, now, each person's tax uh, or accounting practice, I should say, looks different. Their tax treatment looks different. So I might have answered some questions earlier, but you should really find a really good CPA if you are a taxpayer. And um, if you showed your CPA this structure, they can do all sorts of type of tax uh, accounting magic. So, yeah, let those guys do that. I just do the drafting and structuring. So, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, that's uh, the advantages of like, that's part of the wealth mindset too, is you got to start outsourcing. You can't just try to do everything yourself. That's part of what makes it seem like a behemoth to people to go further, to elevate themselves past where they're at. But you definitely got to be able to delegate. Josh, Josh made a funny comment. He said, good work, guys. BS, rough initials though, buddy. <laughs> That's <so> hilarious. <laughs> well, we have BM. That's also well, rough initials. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't give away my middle initial then. I'll make it even worse. So let's not do that. <laughs> Keep that private. All right, guys. Well, Beth, uh, anything else you want to leave people to tell people where your channel is? Yeah, I'm the host of the King Heroes Journey podcast. If you're not familiar, you can find me on um so far, I'm still on my second out of third strike on, on YouTube. So I'm kind of on rocky ground there on Rockfin. My blog is the place to go. If you just go to bethmartins.com or freewillministry.live, that leads you to a tab that says the King Heroes Journey podcast. And I think, like I said, there's, there's, I think up to five now with Brandon. We've had a lot of conversations together. So really good. And, uh, and if you're interested in looking into the journey code coaching certification to learn the tools of working with archetypes and deprogramming and really solid coaching principles that will lead you there for the, or keep you there in the long run, not burning out, then you can email me Beth at bethmartins.com or just visit my page. There's a journey code tab there. You can see all of the details. I'm just, uh, uh, spilling my guts with every little bit of what the training involves. And it's a big commitment, but the people that, do this training, make the biggest transformation of anybody in my world. Because it's one thing to go, just go and, and try to solve your own problems. That's great. You should do that. But when you set your sight on the hero's journey and helping other people, then it's exponential for you what you get out of it. So it's really miraculous what people can do for themselves. I don't do it to anybody or for anyone. They do it for themselves with the, the tools. And you can unpack everything. You'd be amazed, gents. What you think you can't unpack, you can. 
I think I can unpack everything except the spider sense part. You have to be bit by a radioactive spider. <laughs> uh, and Brandon is at safe-haven.co, right? And uh, you also have a Telegram that people can follow. Is that correct? Yeah, you can find me on Telegram by searching Safe Haven Portfolio Management. And uh, I got some unlisted videos on there that I don't have publicly on YouTube. So uh, we have lots of good Q&A sessions on there you can watch um, and some other more advanced uh, strategies that you can learn about. All right, well... And quickly say, Brendan, you have weekly meetings that are awesome and yeah. you, you do videos about them, but there's, there, there's kind of an edit of that. So I do recommend the weekly meetings on zoom. People ask great questions and uh, yeah, it's a good time to engage. So, yeah. Yeah. I normally do the zoom weeks uh, or zoom meetings every week on Wednesdays. Uh, obviously tonight I missed that. So we're doing that tomorrow, uh, but it's always a different topic. I always teach you guys something new. So, yeah, lots of good resources there for you guys. Indeed. Very good. Uh, Beth, thank you. Brandon, thank you. Everyone in the chat, congratulations on receiving (laughs) the information. You know, maybe some people weren't entertained enough for uh, to be here for, but there there are those who will do what it takes and those who will not. And the the truth is the truth. I like what you said. Uh, I live in reality. That's where I want to be, too. So good night, everybody. And we'll see you on the next one. Much love. Thanks, Chance.